Welcome to Reloading the Canon, the intercontinental film podcast about the classics you didn't know were classics. And the reason we're busting out that old standard of a uh, intro line, the one I haven't used for like 10 episodes, is because this is also going to be our last episodes. Also, say hi, Ross. Hello, everybody. I'm still here. Um, uh, so this is like our sixth time trying to record this. Uh, there's also a little bit of delay, so if we're a little awkward responding to each other, that's why. Um, also, I think we're both a little annoyed because Skype shit the bed like six times, and now we're trying to do this to, through Slack, so it is what it is. Also, as I said, it's our last episode, um, and last time I threw it over to Ross to make him try to come up with a reason why we're ending it, but it's not Ross's fault. I will take the blame here. Uh, it's my fault. Uh, the reason we're ending the podcast is because as much as I enjoy recording it, um, actually doing the editing and uploading it and doing the promotion for it uh, has been just a little bit of a... Uh, pain in the ass for me i guess um not in, like the worst way possible but it's just it bums me out instead of making me happy to do those things and i'm always of the opinion that if art you're doing is bumming you out you shouldn't keep doing it you should let it sit for a little while um so Absolutely. uh for right now podcast is going to be over who knows might come back in the future although a lot of the old episodes are going to be gone because i'm not going to be paying for a monthly soundcloud subscription so get those downloads in while you can or just email the podcast uh reloading the canon dot at gmail.com if you want an archive of the old episodes i'll still have them but um yeah russ what, what do you think about the fact that running the podcast i guess is how i'm going to throw it over to you it's very sad um it kind of blindsided me but i totally get the um the issue i get and i understand why um it's coming to an end um I, I, I guess yeah it's a fully valid reason absolutely and i, I was i said on the I'll, I'll reuse a joke that i used from the a dead intro uh, where i said if michelle returns next week with a new podcast with a new co-host you you know what the real reason is and i guess i suppose if we have like awkward delayed responses to each other in this one people might think we've like fallen out or, or some kind of controversy has occurred and you're like i don't want to host anymore with these people <laughs> um I, I can assure you as far as i know that isn't the case um it's just um you know doing these things for free on your own time can take its toll on you Especially Michelle, she does all the heavy lifting. She um, records, cuts it, uploads it, all that business. I'm just here to um, talk at her. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, it's very sad. But I guess I, I have no doubt we will do, speak again on some about films in some capacity. So it's not like a it's not like a full divorce. Yes, yeah, just a partial one. Correct. Um, but since it is the final episode, we're um, doing a little bit more than usual. Uh, we're going to do the episode we talked about last time, which is Jerry. Uh, we're also going to do another movie uh, that we've talked about a lot in the course of the podcast. We revealed when we get to there. And then it'll also be revealed in like the description of the intro. But who, who cares? Uh, yes. And we'll also be going through every movie that we've talked about to see whether like we agree whether it was in the canon or not in the canon that'll be quick we're not going to do a full episode about every single movie again but just so we can finalize the canon before we end everything and then uh finally instead of doing recommendations we're going to talk about some movies that we wanted to put in the canon or we were thinking about bringing up but that we never got to for whatever well i guess the reason is because we're ending it's not for whatever reason it's a pretty clear reason we know the reason (laughs) um but first before we get to there Ross, you wanted me to watch Jerry. You've wanted me to watch this movie for a while, and we finally got around to it. Um, tell people what, why, specifically, Gus Van Zandt's Jerry was one you really wanted to have, even for the last episode of this podcast. Um, I think it was just a long time coming. 
I remember we spoke about like Elephant, which um, I mean, this to give a brief introduction to what Jerry is. It's a film Gus Van Sant made. Um, in the early 2000s, it came out. It was first screened in 2002, came out officially 2003, and it's the first in his what has been billed as the Death Trilogy, which is um, a trio of films um, which could arguably be is also a, um, a quintet of films if you want to include Paranoid Park, which has a lot to a lot of similarities. But the, the three films are um, Jerry, Elephant, and then Last Days. And this is the first film, and there are kind of a trio or quintet of films where he was like inspired specifically by people like Bill Attar. Um, a lot of long takes, a lot of like non-narrative, um, experimental sort of um, duration-focused storytelling. Um, yeah, so I know you love Belatar. I do, and I and I know that you tried to watch Elephant post us talking about Alan Clark's Elephant. Try is a is a very generous statement because I watched like five minutes of it and I turned it off. Uh, that's not to say I didn't like and, it, but uh, yeah, as as I think we've talked about in the podcast before, I thought something bad was going to happen besides the school shooting and um i just didn't want to see that at that point in time i'll probably get back to it eventually i mean i own it on dvd and I hadn't gotten around to it yeah so so either way so you've kind of gone either way the first one have you seen last days um i haven't it's another one i have to get to i mean uh it's one of those ones that i've okay, had cool. recommended to me quite a bit but just the only let's let's lay our um information about gus van zandt right on top uh the gus van zandt films i've seen are goodwill hunting milk uh, my own private Idaho, and now Jerry. Oh, and I saw Finding Forrester too. I, he made that one, even though it's this Goodwill Hunt. Yes. Um, I think those film. I think this film was was very much a reaction on his part to those films. So in the nineties, he ended up doing. Um, he started out as quite an avant garde filmmaker, mm-hmm. you know, like, like part of like the new queer movement where he did things like Malinoche, Drugstore Cowboy, My Own, own Private Idaho, and then I think in the nineties he found himself sort of doing these odd semi-prestige pictures, things like Goodwill Hunting, Fighting Forrester, also like the Psycho remake, which I think is more of a stylistic exercise and, a, and like um, a genuine remake. I think it was definitely on his part. I just thought, let's try that. Um, and then I think he wanted to really get back to doing things that challenged him and he thought was creative without worrying about audiences and budgets. So um, Jerry was the first of those films, which very much feels like a reaction to things like Goodwill Hunting, Finding Forrester. And the film is basically about Casey Affleck and Matt Damon, both play characters called Jerry, with a G. Um, they go out to, I believe, Death Valley, and mm-hmm. they walk around looking for the thing. Uh, not John Carpenter's The Thing, just The Thing. They go, oh, we're going to get to The Thing. Okay, Jerry, let's go to The Thing. Um, so the, the film leaves all the details open to interpretation, and they walk, they talk, they get lost, they end up on it, they quibble, um, the sun rises, um, they get hungry, but it's very much about the environment and everything that comes with it, and time. And yes, it's uh, much closer to maybe like a James Benning sort of thing as it would be to a something else. Um, but yes, so Bellatar is kind of the guiding light for these films. And I know you love Bellatar, and I, I wanted to see me as somebody who came to like Jerry first, but you as someone who kind of has more familiarity with, with Bellatar. You've never I seen thought, Bellatar, how, right? I've seen The Turing Horse. That's the only one I've seen. Gotcha. Um, but I only saw that maybe the last two years, and he's not a filmmaker I've gone back to yet. But he's someone I intend to when they like do like a proper re- remastered version of like San- um, S- Satan Tango, Satan Tango, yeah, Satan Tango, things like that. So I'm kind of just waiting until the presentations are there to really go into them. Um, so I just thought it'd be interesting for you to see it as someone who, for all intents and purposes, loves this kind of film, um, and see what you think of it. So Michelle, um, what did you think to Jerry? 
Um, it's a little bit interesting because uh, I've always heard this movie described as like, you know, Gus Van Zandt's Bellatar movie. Um, I'm a huge Bellatar fan. There's actually a couple shots in this that are direct echoes of Bellatar sequences, um, which when you finally watch Satin Tango, you will see like there's a couple shots in here that are directly like almost shot for shot just uh, in a different location. Uh, which are wonderful. Right. I really like those quite a bit. Um, but as someone who's mostly familiar with Gus Van Zandt through Goodwill Hunting and Milk, which are not movies I like, or Finding Forrester, which I like even less than those ones, um, I was not exactly looking forward to it because I didn't want to see like discount Bellatar. I guess I didn't want to see like the populist Gus Van Zandt's version of a Bellatar movie because I didn't think that that would be interesting. Um, yeah. But what I found in Jerry was yes, there's the like the Bellatar influence, which is very clear, very obvious, but where Bellatar's films are like oppressive and heavy, uh, and Jerry certainly gets to points like that. Jerry overall is more zen-like and calm, and uh, it reminded me a lot of. I was actually before we finally got this call working, I was listening to uh, Klaus Schultz, uh, his work Earlicht. He was one of the members of Tangerine Dream, so that's the more common, I guess, common reference. Uh, it reminded me a lot of yeah. like a Tangerine Dream song or like a Klaus Schultz song, where it's dr- droning, but also calming while having a certain air of menace to it yeah and i think too what because i haven't seen this film in a long time i've i haven't seen this i've probably seen elephant a lot more even though i saw elephant first i've still seen elephant more since i've seen this i've only seen this film once before so it's interesting for me to go back with probably a good 10 years between and i've seen a lot of movies since then to see how i would feel about it and the film to me was like it was a lot like you say it wasn't as heavy as I, as I thought it was. In fact, like it was also kind of funny. The first like half is too? like like very very funny. Like there's that whole like almost Abbott and Costello routine when he's making the dirt co- the dirt mattress for uh yes. for him because uh, uh, Casey Affleck gets somehow on top of a big rock. We have no idea how he got there. He has no idea how he got up there, and he doesn't know how to get down. So Matt Damon's idea is to make a dirt mattress for him, which is just seems to be him piling dirt into the most a ludicrous two thing <laughs> into like a two foot area, so he could jump down and not break his ankles. And then uh, yeah, it, that it just goes and goes. That sequence has to be like ten minutes long of them just talking yeah. about this whole idea of how he's going to get down, and uh, like in, mostly in one static shot as well. Yeah, there's only one it cutaway, like. and I'm pretty sure that cutaway is just so that they can make uh the effect of it work because there's a there's a special effect that's very subtle but uh it the punctuation of that scene works very well let's just say that yeah yeah and it's also the idea it's almost like these two kind of semi like gen x's who are doing this it's not like you have like a bellatar film i've only seen one but i kind of get the texture and you yeah, i bet you have like these sort of like very f- philosophical sort of characters who are very straight-faced and a very sort of even if maybe they're not educated they're kind of expressing very educated ideas in a way do you know what I mean? And this one is like Matt Damon and Casey Affleck, who are like they. I mean, there's a big chunk of this where they're just talking about like an episode of um, Jeopardy. I think it's an American TV show. Yeah, it's Jeopardy. Oh, no, like, I'm sorry, it's not Jeopardy. It's um the Wheel of Fortune. Wheel of Fortune. Is that what it is? Yeah. So they're making these references where it's just like Casey Affleck, Matt Damon being them. It's like imagine Casey Affleck and Matt Damon literally getting lost in Death Valley. It feels like the characters they sort of play. Like Casey Affleck is in Goodwill Hunting as kind of one of the Boston guys. And you can imagine if you took like that character out and he ended up lost in like a Bellatar film, like <laughs> this is very much what that is for a large chunks of it. And these characters are sort of bumbling, fumbling um, characters. I mean, and they're both, the fact that they're both called Jerry, they both like, hey, Jerry, are you doing this, Jerry? And they also refer to things like they will say, don't Jerry the landing or don't Jerry, like the, the word Jerry is a slang term as well, for like, which I believe up. is something Ben Affleck. Yes, which I believe like Ben Affleck comes from Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Casey Affleck, they would use that as a term. And because Casey Affleck and Matt Damon are credited as writers with this film, so what I imagine is 
get, Gus Van Sant probably had like a very rough idea, a concept, and he kind of let the actors fill in a lot of the character and the dialogue, perhaps, which is why they're usually they're credit. You know, I can imagine that's probably why they're credited because they all collaborated together and um, create the dialogue. Um, and I just think it's a very interesting idea. Of it is like um, I always talk about Richard Linklater, but it does feel like it's probably close. It's like a Richard Linklater sort of Bellatar film, as you would maybe think a Gus Van Sant film, just because of the way the characters are and the the age they are, and also the the time this takes place, which is like early two thousand. Um, you you feel like these are two characters um, who are very much of that time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the t shirt they wear. Yes, they're kid, definitely dressed yes, yeah, like, like a, <laughs> they're uh, in a they're in a Smashing Pumpkins cover band. They look like. Absolutely, yeah, and they just—they're just kind of helpless, and they don't really know what to. They do get lost, and they have no sense of as you would. Like I imagine, if I got lost in this situation, it wouldn't be far from this. Um, and like the, Michelle talked about the the kind of the the comedy routine of him stuck on this cliff, this rock, um, and worrying about breaking his ankle. And it's not even like a huge jump, but it is that worry of if I'm out here and I have a broken ankle, I am fucked. And the fact that these two and they're trying to like the most <laughs> pathetic means of <laughs> avoiding this catastrophe. Um, and it is really funny as well. And then the film slowly becomes less um, vocally articulate as it goes on. The dialogue really kind of fades out as the film carries on. And, and there wasn't like, like a lot ambient. to begin with. Like, uh, it's not like there's no, ever right, super exactly. talkative, but it goes to almost the point where no one's talking at all. Um, and it becomes more fantastical. Like uh, in the beginning, yes. it's very almost grounded in its own weird way. And then as it goes and goes, all of a sudden things from the soundtrack start coming up like uh it like almost like a horror movie or like a sci-fi film soundtrack style. Yeah. That's super ambient abstract stuff. And there's a part later on uh, that I adored where it's uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are sitting next to each other and you can see between them that there's something in the distance that's coming towards them and you can't see what it is for a while, but eventually you realize it's a person and then uh, the camera slowly shifts over so that just Casey, the back of Casey Affleck's head is in view. And then all of a sudden like walking towards them is Matt Damon. Uh, it's like such yeah. a weird, like surreal sci-fi effect that uh, I wasn't expecting in the movie at all, but uh, that I found very rewarding whenever those kinds of things were brought up in it. Yeah, and I think it's also very—it's one of the things you don't often see. It's very strange to see people like Matt Damon and Casey Affleck in this kind of film, and it's something like I'm not used to seeing. It's very odd to see them in these long, long takes. Like I don't think I've ever looked at a, a real-time take of Matt Damon ever in my life as I have in Jerry. And same for Casey Affleck, even though Casey Affleck was in Ghost Story last year, which I guess is probably the closest he's come, maybe, to going back to doing something like this. Except for the fact um, that it was a body it double was... in most of Ghost Story, right? <laughs> yes, which does annoy me to know him. But you know what I mean? Like, it's the closest mm-hmm. he's come to going back to doing um, this sort of experimental, weird, on the fringes film. And um, I think it's just, I'd like to see more big name actors. I know they weren't as big as they were now back then, but this is this is just on the cusp of like Matt Damon being Jason Bourne and all that stuff. Um and it is just interesting to see these pe- these faces who you're so familiar with in such like an unfamiliar terrain. Um, well, I mean, I think like I really, is, I really like there's it. some precedent in it in like uh, uh, th- this will be coming out after everyone already knows who our winners are for the Dim the House Lights Awards. But it's uh, our two favorite actors of this uh, last year were uh, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. And they were both in these like weird experimental yeah. movies. And I think that that's like the yeah. closest analog we have in modern day to this kind of a movie. Yeah. Definitely. And then, like I said, none of them have really done anything since then. But like, even if you look at Matt Damon and Casey Affleck's sort of trajectory around here, this comes out of nowhere and then disappears again. Like, they don't really do anything again in this film where you feel like Robert Pattinson and Kristen, Kristen Stewart, they've sort of been on this trajectory post-Twilight where they're kind of doing these interesting um, films, um, you know, things like he's been, like, chrono- um, 
Pattinson worked with Cronenberg, did Cosmopolis, which I would say is a much more avant-garde film than Good Time. And then Kristen Stewart as well. Kristen Stewart was doing things with uh, Olivier um, Assayas, I believe is how you pronounce it. Okay. He's did, she was kind of worked with something. I don't know how you say his name. But, you know, they, they've kind of been, you kind of feel like post-Twilight, they've kind of rebelled against this movie star notion. And they've sort of been wanting to be taken seriously as actors and doing material that challenges them and challenges an audience. And, and Matt Damon has never really done that. Um, and he's never done it since. And I, can, I just imagine him, him in this point in his career sitting down with Gus Van Sant and him saying, oh, I want to do... Do you know who Bella Tarr is, Matt Damon? <laughs> and Bella Tarr, this, might, this could be a slight against Matt Damon. I don't mean that. Um, but you, you can't imagine him there going, yeah, yeah, and watching maybe one of those films and go, let's do this. Um, and maybe he did, but never did it again because probably he, he became massive. Um, it was also funny watching this in 2018 because... Um, not to get too gossipy and headlight and tabloidy, but it does feel like this is the film probably a lot of people would like to see, see Casey Affleck and Matt Damon go get lost in Death Valley somewhere yes, together. Yes. Um, and I do feel like a lot of the, the st- dumb stuff Matt Damon has been saying the past year regarding like current events and also the Casey Affleck controversy, it, probably feel, it, it does feel like um, like a weird netherworld I stepped into where I'm like these two poor guys who've just you know been sent away in purgatory saying nobody wants anything to fucking do with you, so go over there for a while and get lost. Um, but beyond all that, that's all extra textual stuff that I'm adding to it. But it does have that novelty value, if that is the way you uh, like to read movies sometimes. Well, um, but no, I, I agree. Feel like I think a the... lot of Gus Van Zandt's career has a weird novelty value. Like I've, I think I brought this up a couple times in the Den the House Lights chat. He's just had such a strange go of things, where he started off with like his little experimental films, then he directed. He's directed a couple of the worst received movies of the past like 30 years. Like he did Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which everyone hates. He did uh, most recently Sea of Trees, which was just. I think it's actually his worst reviewed movie so far, which is impressive when he also, like you said, directed the Psycho remake, which everyone also hated. And I've never seen, I understand what it, the point of it is as a formal exercise, even though as a formalist, um, I have some big problems with the fact that he added shots to it, but that's, yeah. <laughs> I for, suppose that's for our, our Psycho episode when we get to there, um, or never yes. will get to there. But, uh, and then he also does movies like, you know, Elephant or Paranoid Park or Last Days that we're talking about, and then sandwiches those Milk. With milk. Or with, yeah. uh, like, what's that new movie he's doing? Uh, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, which seems like it's just, just like, looks a, like the most what? middle-brow movie possible. And he also did, did things like, um, what's it called now? To Die For. Um, like, he did that film. He did that film. Yeah, that was in the 90s. That's a good, that's like a really good compromise of, like, Gus Van Sant doing Gus Van Sant film, but also doing, like, a star vehicle. Mm-hmm. But they also did things, the past 10 years, things like that film, Restless, which was, uh, me and Vasikowska plays, like, a dead girl who comes, or is it a dead guy? Like this weird, strange ghost love story that everybody hated, and everyone's apparently forgotten about it. And then he also did that film Promised Land, which was written by Matt Damon, John Krasinski, and starred Matt Damon, yes. which Matt Damon was, was going to direct, but then which I I got round to late and just watched it with the worst expectations. I kind of liked it; it wasn't great, but it wasn't it was nowhere near as like you think. What is this? Um, so I thought that, but I agree his his career has been very broad and all over the place um and I, but it feels like to me in like definitely like like film twitter groups maybe not that i'm i'm submerged into that but it feels like the psycho remix taken on this kind of status now where at least as an artifact people kind of talk about it a lot like it doesn't feel like the film has gone away i know steven soderbergh did like a re-edit a few years back that was mashed them both together and it feels like people like i know that it was like a new special edition was brought out and i was like what um i mean it's so it feels like, like psycho- um uh, conceptually, it's not exactly the same, but similar to how uh, Haneke remade Funny Games shot for shot, but in yes. English. And yeah. uh, like trying to take the exact same material and revisit it in like the context he made of like 
for, I, obviously like for like his point was I'm talking about Americans, so Americans should be able to see this movie. And Gus Van Zandt's point was more like, what happens if you do the exact same thing? Do you get the exact same effect from it? And clearly the answer is no. And I guess in a way, almost like the failure of Psycho proves his point. So it makes it more of a success as a piece of art. It's weird. Yeah, exactly. Like there was definitely intention with that film beyond just beyond just being like, let's remake a classic. It felt like some very much like a stylistic exercise that... I bet he kind of wished was probably a l- little more underground than it was. But um, yeah, his career, like he's like, I always say he laid the groundwork for David Gordon Green, who has an equally yes. random filmography as well. Um, but back to Jerry, yeah, um, I think to, from the handful, the scattershot films I've seen of Gus Van Sant, and I've seen like a few of them, he's not somebody I, I would, I could like roll off all their films off the top of my head, but I've seen a, a load of them all across the spectrum. I would definitely say my favourite are these few films he made um you know jerry through to paranoid park i love all the films in the death trilogy elephant which we spoke about before was quite like a really big format I, the first time i'd seen anything like that that had probably the first time i'd seen a shot that ran lasted than, longer than five minutes mm-hmm. um so he was that was always an important film to me and i think that led me to jerry and the jerry again was this you know having that same experience um but i do like this film a lot and i do think it holds up and i like so many things in it like the sunset scene, the sunrise, is it the sunrise, doesn't it? Yes, the sun rises yes. while they're doing it, they're like walking like zombies on the the, the thing, on the uh, the desert. Uh, you brought up a film recently saying, what are the, was it Sleep Has a House? Where you said, you, when do you ever see a full yes, sunset? Yes, yes. And then and during I said, that episode, well, <laughs> you, that's, I think that's why you suggested Jerry, if I remember correctly. I think it is, yeah. I think that's why I finally came back round. Um, but that, I have always remembered that scene of, because it's, I think when I first saw it, I didn't even realize. It was a full sunrise, and then I clicked and went, oh, that's what that was. Huh. But the way they're walking like zombies, and the, the music is like this weird, like you say, sci-fi track that is kind of spooking. Like, that would work as a, as a short film in itself. Um, and I thought, that was, was when I think of that scene, I was I think that's kind of Michelle's taste. Um, yeah, no, it is. So I how do, definitely agree. Excellent. I'm glad, uh, after all these podcasts, my, um, <laughs> my gauge for your taste turned out to be accurate. So, Michelle... Um, Jerry, let me, let me think what else is there. I mean, I do want to say you just said that you uh, haven't, you made some kind of like offhand comment about how you haven't really seen that many Gus Van Zandt films. You've seen all but three of his feature films. So just wanted to point that oh, out. Oh, no, I think, I think what I meant to say was I've seen a lot from, I mean, have I, is there only three I haven't seen? That's crazy. Uh, the only ones, according to seen... Letterboxd, is you haven't seen Finding Forrester. Um, right. You haven't seen uh, Sea of Trees. And I haven't I, seen Cowgirl. And yeah, that's, that, that's the last one. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, yes, I have seen um, a lot of Gus Van Sant then. But he's not somebody I would necessarily think about beyond this handful of films. Well, I, I weirdly like, never I mean. think of him as a great director, even though he probably is. Uh, kind of, I guess. It's, I, I have no real way to classify him because he makes so many different kinds of movies. And some of those movies I like quite yeah. a bit. I really, really like My Own Private Idaho. I liked yeah. Jerry quite a bit, spoiler alert. Um, but some of those, like, I think that Milk's fucking terrible. I think that Finding Forrester is terrible. Um, Goodwill Hunting, I, I know you like quite a bit, Ross, I think is super, like, hammy and not very good, but... Yeah. Like, when I think of him Good as Will a Hunting. whole career, I don't like his career, but when I think of individual movies, I like some of those movies quite a bit. Yeah. I think Goodwill Hunting, to me, was one of those films that I, I really... Th- I didn't watch it for a long time, because if you picture that poster, it's like Matt Damon and Robin Williams on a bench at, like, Autumn Lighting... Um, and I really sort of rebelled again. I thought, oh, watch that. But then I watched it and I thought it was kind of, it was surprising. I haven't seen it in a long time, so my opinion might have changed. But the last time I watched it, I think I've rated a, a big high rating. Four and, uh, and a half stars. Being again in, yes, I was very invested in it. And I thought that it was very well, 
characterized and all that stuff. But I haven't seen it in a while, so that might change. But yeah, I didn't realize I've sort of seen as much as I have, which also probably is a testament to that he's so hard to pin down and kind of have a, a real opinion on. Um, beyond like certain periods, like I do, I think uh, he's definitely at his best when he does like My Own Private Idaho and then this handful of films. Those are the, that's the kind of Gus Van Sant I'm really drawn to. Like if you think about things in My Own Private Idaho, just formally that are so kind of jarring in a good way and inventive. I always remember like the sex scene where it's like them posing for photographs, it's all still, and the use of like very bright coloured um, like cards to like signify um, locations. And he does that here, like the, the film ends and it's got like a bright blue, like instead of black screen, it's this bright blue. Um, almost like the, the Derek Jarman film, Blue. Yes, yes. Um, which I would, even that as a choice to me was is just very like, oh wow, like pop art sort of, um, and it's just a very simple choice, but such like a degree to the left of the norm that it just adds, it makes it like an end title cut to black, a cut to blue from this kind of film, just so much more sort of, oh wow, eye popping. And um, yes, yeah, so I do, I'd realize this film and I think I like the simplicity of it. Because Elephant is a much more ambitious film. It's a much more sprawling cast. It's obviously about a much bigger issue. Because we should also say these films are tied together by the fact they're kind of loosely based on true stories. This one, I believe, is based on an incident where um, two guys uh, went out into maybe Death Valley or at least a similar terrain, got lost and ended up killing. Spoiler alert, um, ended up one of them killed the other one. Which I don't know if it was. This, like in The way it's portrayed in this film, Casey Affleck's character is sort of dying. I don't know if Matt Damon does it sort of stop his suffering. Um, so I think that's that's what it's based on. Obviously, Elephant is based on Columbine. Last Days is based on um, Kurt Cobain's suicide. And I do and like the simplicity like, of this one. Um, I what do you call it? Uh, I haven't seen Elephant or Last Days yet, but from what I know about them, because they are in certain circles very, very revered films. So I've heard quite a bit about them. All three of the films, like in terms of their violence uh, or their their deaths, seem explicitly not moralizing and explicitly not giving you why X, Y, and Z Absolutely. happens. Yeah. In, like in Elephant, one of the things that always struck me about Elephant is it is about a school shooting, but it, does, it doesn't sensationalize it. And it's almost like just the cold-hearted way the film depicts it. In these looks, you, You're so sort of numb to the environments with these long shots of classical music. And then the film doesn't shift gears and suddenly become really frenetic. It carries on in that pace. It just happens to show um, characters shooting other characters in this very detached, almost like um, this very this rhythmic... And it's very, very, very disturbing. It's detaching from the violence, but also making it much more felt and um, not normalizing it, but making it more realistic. And the same with Jerry and um, the, the unsung hero of all three of these films. Maybe not unsung, but definitely someone we haven't we haven't even mentioned yet, who I think deserves a mention is um, Harris Savides, who is the DOP who shot. I believe he shot all three of them, and he definitely shot Jerry. And I'm pretty sure he did Elephant. Um, but the cinematography in all of these films, and probably most on show, is in Jerry. Because he has all these landscapes, and um, I think the way the film's photographed, which is on thirty-five millimeter, which he remarkable. had to be convinced to do, because I, from what I was reading, the original plan was to shoot it on DV, and then I That's think right, that Casey yeah. Affleck convinced him to do thirty-five millimeter, and uh, I think yeah. Gus Van Sant said the whole movie changed. Exactly, which makes sense. I mean, I could totally picture a DV version of this. Yeah, yeah, and I imagine, but I, I imagine I don't think some, there is. I think I'd like it in a different way. Whereas this movie, like exactly the, having those epic landscapes, is part yeah. of what. Uh, almost makes it soothing and almost makes it like that positive ambient feature whereas if it was dv it'd be a lot harsher it would be more off-putting i suppose yeah and the the low light levels you wouldn't be able to get some of the things they get here with the 35 yeah. millimeter and like that whole sun sunset to sunrise would be kind of just a mess in dv it'd, be, it'd have its own qualities um but it wouldn't be this this kind of widescreen um just the way they film in low light here is i just think is the 35 millimeter really lends a lot to it and it's 
yeah, I agree. I think it's um, it would be a different film. I agree, Gus Van Sant. It would be a different film, <laughs> and also it'd be weird to sort of. It's such an ask anyway to for someone like Gus Van Sant, Casey Affleck, and Matt Damon to put this film out there. Like, I, I don't think it had a wide release by any means. And I only think it's in the wake of Elephant that it actually got distribution because Elephant was made this following year, won the Palm d'Or, and I believe that's why the two films came out kind of the same year. Because I think on the strength of Elephant, Jerry got distribution, but it still remains a lesser seen film. But imagine if that was on DV back in the early two thousands, it would be like when Danny Boyle did Twenty Eight Days Later on DV. At least you have like a rollicking zombie film where people can just kind of get invested in that. But this would be a very hard film to exhibit and I mean, distribute. This was the point where like only dog made films were being made on DV. Exactly. Yeah. And twenty days. When did that? When did, was that an early two thousands film or is that like mid two thousands? Two thousand and one. Really? Two thousand two. I think twenty twenty eight days later was yeah. For some reason, I was thinking it was like two thousand five. But I mean, okay, yeah, two thousand two. Wow. Yeah. Um. But again, that film is is stylized in a way where I mean, when I first watched that, I only realized I was shot on DV because when you watch it on DVD. DVD has such a resolution that you can't really DVD tell. That you can't really tell. It's only when I, I did a dissertation, I spoke to the um, the editor of Twenty Eight Days Later at university. I kind of when I was researching, I realized it was actually shot on DV. And then it was when the Blu-ray came out, and I watched it, and I was like, "Oh yeah," because I never saw it on the big screen, so I never would have really noticed the the change. But I thought that was a pretty staggering thing for them to do to do that film in DV. Uh, but like I said, it is a zombie film. You couldn't really imagine a film like Jerry if it, it would just be like an art exhibit sort of film. And um, I think it was probably the right move to do it in 35 mil. But again, there's no real, there doesn't seem to be a lot of fanfare for this film. Like, there's no like HD release as I that I know of. I don't even know if it's streaming anyway in HD. It's very odd. I mean, if you even if you like just Google Jerry, the first thing you get is like jackets and pants. You don't you don't get anything about the movie. You have to like yeah. specifically Google Jerry film. Film is what I had to do. Yeah, yeah. So it's it is a film that seems to be people probably get to it through the other films and. Like I said, Gus Van Sant hasn't had that career where he is all his work has sort of been lifted up, where people can easily discover it. It's still a film that does feel lost for people to to discover, which I like about it. And like I said, I haven't returned to it in a long, long time. Um, and I think it still holds up, and it still feels um, different and different from what's out there, and also different from what Gus Van Sant's making. And even even though this kind of cinema, I've be, I've watched a lot more films like this, many through you, Michelle. Um, but it still feels to me like a valid... It doesn't feel like a poor man's attempt at this kind of film. It doesn't feel like a Hollywood director going, I'm going to try and do this. It does feel like um, this is probably Gus Van Sant really indulging in his own taste and his own... Really challenging himself. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree. It's uh, There's a lot of discount versions of Bellator you can make that would be kind of crass almost. Whereas this film, he feels like he really went for it. He really like took a lot of chances. I... Here, we're going to wrap We're gonna wrap it up. It's going to be a great segue. Um, yes. I personally wouldn't put it in the canon just because it didn't have that strong of an effect on me, I suppose. And having seen a lot of movies that are similar to this one, even though, like, I think there was actually another review where it was brought up uh, that I was reading where if he had made this in Europe, no one would have really cared because in Europe, like, there's lots of films like this. But in America, yeah. it's very unique. Um, I think in the pantheon of films like this, I would put this higher up, but not like one of the all-timers. That's fair, yeah. And I, I completely agree with that. I think that it does have this novelty of having... Matt Damon, Casey Affleck doing this kind of film with like the American, the Americana that comes with like Death Valley. Mm. I do also well. want to say that like, um, I don't really like I all the negative reviews I read said that it was boring, which I I feel like it's super zippy for the kind of movie this is. Like I was never yeah. felt like it was overstaying its welcome. I'm I'm also obviously pretty uh, used to these kinds of films, so that 
helps, but you know. You are a hardened film person when it comes to uh, duration and film lengths. But I agree with you, because when I came to rewatch it, I was flabbergasted that it's 100 minutes. I always thought this was like an 80-minute film. And I, I even to the point where I pl- started playing it, and I was like, this must be something wrong with my the fire. Like, it's going to be like 10 minutes of black, 20 minutes of black screen <laughs> afterwards. Because I was like, this is, we're halfway through, and I was like, no, bloody hell. It actually is. It. It's one of the few 100-minute films that feels like 80 minutes and is, is not fast-paced. Um, which is something to pull off, which which is a testament to the, the the cinematography, the directing, and the editing that it does. It does have this pace that isn't it isn't taxing. It's not one of those films where you watch and you go, "Come on now, get to the point, get to the point." I think maybe that um, might I, be actually the main difference between like what makes this almost American uh, in its own sense yes. is that something like Bellatar, like I adore him, but his movies are often purposefully difficult and purposefully taxing in their yeah. like length and their shot durations and like how they present everything whereas this film never feels like it trying to make you work exactly exactly and, like the most frustrating thing i think for some people like in some reviews the scene where he's trying to jump off the boulder they found that like getting a bit tedious and long in the tooth but at, at least you have the entertainment factor of these two bumbling idiots trying to figure out how to jump off a fucking boulder yeah yeah like it's not like you watch you know I always talk. The one I always go back to is in Simon Lang's Str- Stray Dogs. Is that what it's called? Uh, yes, that yes. one with the dog film. There's literally there's like a very close to a twenty minute shot of two people staring at a wall, and you're just looking at the two people static. Um, and it's nowhere near as taxing as that. Not that that isn't necessarily taxing, but it is a challenging shot to watch for that long. It's a kind of shot that you describe really- to someone, and they are like, "Oh, I'm not going to watch that film." And they would just immediately think, like, if I went down the street to the pub most British sentence I've ever said, and was like, I'm making a film, it's about this, and the 20-minute shot, just someone staring at the wall, they go, well, that's not a film, like, what? It'd just yeah. be baffling. Um, so I agree with you, I think, and maybe that's why I do like this, because my probably my sensibility is sort of forged in this kind of entertainment and entertaining film. I much more, get easily get more invested in like a good story, an old-fashioned story with characters. Um, which about like a film like Goodwill Hunting, I can acknowledge it's kind of saccharine, and it has like all this schmaltzy stuff in there, but I don't mind that. It's like I always say, I like Forrest Gump a lot. And I can totally see why people hate it. And I can see why people are pissed off at it. Because it does have this pro-America fairy tale. It's like the most... All the ingredients of that film are just so grown-worthy. But every time I watch it, I get sucked into Tom Hanks' performance. And all that. Just entertainment value. I kind of go, well, look, it's it's a film pitched at so many people. And I, I do, it does... And every time I sit down... Like my girlfriend never seen it when I first got with her. And I sat down and watched it with her. And she was just so invested. And it's just nice to go back to those days when films that just tell a story kind of still work for you. And I never quite lost that. Not that I'm saying you have, but those kind of films that are easily... No, I have. It's fine. You can say I have. I don't really, oh, you, I don't you really go for those kinds of films anymore. <laughs> or at least like when I do, I never like them for the story. Like I almost yeah. got into an argument with someone at work because they were like, I described a film I really liked. And they were like, if a film doesn't have a story, it's not a film. And that's yeah. obviously <laughs> my least favorite thing to hear in the whole world. Whereas I am, like, as much as I don't necessarily agree with that as a statement, I agree with um, that point of view. I can see why someone had that point of view as opposed to being like, I wouldn't necessarily try and challenge them and say, well, 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 you haven't seen this and this. Because I, 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 I remember being that person who would, if if you sat me down at, like, 12 years old and showed me, like, a Simon Lang film, I would be like, what the fuck? Well, uh, there's, uh, this is a larger discussion than we have time to get into, but I think that a lot of audiences themselves don't give themselves or the movies they watch enough credit because like you look at movies like um 
most big budget action movies, like be they Michael Bay movies or whatever, their stories are almost non-existent and they're bad when they are existent. Yes. People still flock to those. But because it theoretically has a through line, people think that they aren't watching a non-narrative film. Whereas to me, a lot of the best stuff that uh, Michael Bay has done almost verges on non-narrative in the way he approaches things. Um, but yeah. that's a whole other discussion. Exactly. And I think people are too sort of held up on like, they need familiarity to feel safe. and they And sometimes when they don't have that, they feel like it's a wrong choice and they feel like it's not um it's just not right and i don't th- i think it's not necessarily a problem with the film it's just their kind of accepting of like newer things and also a, like you said it's- like the fact that uh people in general are kind of this is again a really big topic but um people are like trained to view things a certain way and that there's certain rules to things and certain rules to art and i think it's a problematic way that we look at art and we look at people who consume art yeah. and what art should mean to us it's like the fact that nowadays pretty much no one uh, thinks of themselves as liking poetry, even though I feel like a lot of people do like poetry. They just, the things they like, they don't think of as poetry. And when they read poetry, they're so invested in that mindset of like, oh, I have to understand what this means in order to like it. And be, Absolutely, like, that's yeah. such like this barrier uh, that that they put up for themselves and that society puts up for them that makes it really hard for abstract art to get the penetration. I feel like it could if that barrier wasn't, but you know. Exactly. And a lot of those stuff is people see them as academic. Yeah, It's yeah, like yeah. things like opera, theatre, poetry, all these things are kind of art forms that people really feel like they've got to put a suit and tie on to kind of experience and consider. Um, and that is a mindset that is problematic, um, which I agree with. And I think Jerry um, is a nice middle ground for that, but it's not going to convince anyone to go and watch Bailata unless you're already that way inclined. Like if you someone stumbled on, on Jerry in the middle of the night and started watching it, they're either going to turn it off or they're going to keep watching it. Yes, yes. And, um, I mean, do you ever think there's going to be a day when a film like Jerry is mainstream? Um, I don't think in this kind of context. I think that there could come a day where... Uh, I, th- I think it's a little too static in the way it moves. But I think there could come a day where like pure visual, just like motion, light and sound, all that kind of totally supersedes uh, plot in every way. And we can finally have like a plotless action picture. Uh, yeah. That really like has... It like, feels like... It still it feels to me like everything is just getting faster and faster. And like like how and fast maybe... could it get to? And like I feel like at some point you're getting so fast that it just is abstract art. Yeah, exactly. So Michelle, speaking of um, abstract art, challenging abstract art and uh, challenging art. What are we going? Do we have to do the canon wrap up? Oh, I think we already one? did. Like I said, I wasn't going to put in the canon. So yeah. okay. Well, I, I would put Jerry in the canon, but it's not going in the canon, obviously, because it, it takes two to tango. It does in yes. the canon. Um, but to carry on that discussion from uh, from one challenging film to another, what's this film that you suggested for this? The final film we're going to shine a light on in a major way, Michelle. Um, from the this is the the last reloading the canon canon potential. The nominee that is from you, yes, the originator of this podcast. So it's all coming full circle in a way. Well, to be fair, Michelle, I, what I did give you a choice between two different movies. And I think I think you picked the correct one. Um, it wasn't a choice, though, was it? Really, I suppose you knew it what I was gonna. Um, for like since the beginning of this podcast, I've said I'm gonna make you sit down and watch a Neil Breen movie. And damn it, Ross, or if you finally watched a Neil Breen movie. I had you watch. I am here. Dot 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 dot. That's four dots, not three, like a proper ellipsis. Yes. Four dots. Now, uh, by Neil Breen came out in 2009. It was actually the first Neil Breen movie I saw. So uh, you're kind of in my shoes at the moment, uh, having no idea about the rest of his filmography. Since then, I've seen everything he's done. Uh, I own multiple DVDs of his. Uh, I can't get 
I can't get a hold of Double Down or I am here now. They're actually very rare and he won't repress them because he's he's a strange he's a strange character. Um, but I really wanted you to sit down and watch this because Neil Breen is uh depending on who you ask, he's either one of the worst filmmakers ever, like uh down there with like Ed Wood and Tommy Wiseau, or he's kind of a genius making movies like no one else is making right now. Either way, you have to admit that he's an auteur, and if you see more of his movies, you'll see you've basically seen every one of his movies since you saw one of his movies. All of his movies are about the same thing. But Ross, what I'm really interested in, uh, I will get to your opinion on the movie in a minute, but I want to see you try to describe the plot of I Am Here Now. Okay, right. Okay. Let's do this. So, um, the film begins in space, or some kind of like Windows screen server server <laughs> version of space. We're then in the desert... As if, as if I've just left Jerry and Jerry to die somewhere. I then go over to a different part of the desert, and this thing crashes down. I'm not going to go through, but I'm not going to describe the entire film. So the film, I, from what I could gather, is about a, a Jesus alien man. So far, so who good. Has also got, who also has, I, what I am assuming, some kind of robotic um, inner workings. Because he seems to have like chipboards from the inside of computers. He, he, he first time we see him, he has stigmata marks on his feet. He's in a looks like a um, a high school lab coat that's been folded for a long time. Yes. He's wearing that. He he has the the bleeding stigmata hands and feet, and he also has chipboards. Is that what it's called? The microchip boards from like the inside of a computer. Circuit boards. We yes. have yeah circuit boards, <laughs> chip boards, and he also has them on his chest. And then occasionally we will like jump into what I assume is inside his circuits. So it's like he he's either some kind of religious figure. He's a creator because he makes it very clear um, that he has created Earth. Like you can't get a bigger character than this character who is unnamed. So I assume it's just an, an avatar for Neil Breen, um, who, by the way, Neil Breen, I was watching this and I was like, who does this guy remind me of? He reminds me of a kind of a younger Richard Gere look a lot um like impersonator crossed with like Gary Shandling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's you're right. I never thought of it, but that that is an exact way to describe what Neil Breen looks like. And he also has like the way he will speak and consider his environment. This is someone who's been watching a lot of Star Trek original series lately. He's almost like Spock and Kirk had a child. Yes. And he inherited both Leonard Nimoy and Shatner's acting takes and um cadence. And he kind of and all the bad I guess I would say kind of the stuff everyone laughs at about Shatner, he has that same serious, I'm going to move when I don't need to move, Zoolander-ish kind of like, mm, I'm turning into the shot look. So this is this character who makes it very clear at the beginning that he lands in the desert and there is a rubber tarantula and a skull. Um, he asks the skull, why is humanity so bad? Well, no, he says, I'm very disappointed in your race. Pause. The human race, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> um, and he then proceeds to go to Vegas in a stolen van from some, like, um, this seems like a first date with some drug dealers. Yes, or maybe they yes. bought a lot of drugs. They're on some kind of dating situation who then get um, mugged by um, Super well, Breen. I do want to pause real quick. That has one of my favorite dialogue exchanges in the film. I'm so where, high. Um, the, well, there's that one. But there's also the part where the guy says, have we died and gone to heaven? Oh, no, no, he says, oh, yes. I must have died and gone to heaven. And then it cuts to the girl, and she says, have we died and gone to heaven? Like, seconds yeah. apart from each other is great. Keep going. There is a lot of this film that feels like there is a linear version of this film, and he kind of, you know when you edit something, in uh, people who edit in video, any timeline, the, they talk, you they like, talk about a like, shot out and plonk. And they talk about, like, finding films and editing. This film was lost in editing somehow. Yes, and it, it, the, the narrative is like, 
I was watching it. I, I literally I watched ten minutes of this film, and I rung a friend of mine who lives down the street, and he was he wasn't doing anything today. And I was like, "Are you busy today? Do you want to come watch a film with me?" Because I thought I need to watch this with somebody and just kind of experience it as like a communal experience. And he was watching it with me, and we were both like having having a good time with it. And um, so we were both like, "What is going?" And there's like sequences like when you do an edit, you can like lift a shot out and put it down. You'll just to move out of the way, put it down down further down time on top of another shot. Mm-hmm. And it feels like he forgot to like then put get erase that shot. So you'll have like a shot from a scene that comes like forty minutes later in like the first ten minutes, and yeah. you'll go, oh, "What?" Like uh, one of the s- biggest uh, examples of that is the fact that there's two sisters in this movie. We'll, we eventually get to two sisters um, who are, I guess, twins. Well, according twins. to that one guy who was really excited about that. Um, but yes, in, in kind of early on, I want to I want to say the beginning, but it doesn't happen until like twenty minutes into the fucking movie because the first twenty minutes are just him waking up in the desert and taking that car. Um, yeah. but, uh, after we get into that, like pretty early on in the movie, one of the sisters, the blonde one gets fired from her job because, uh, corporations don't want to spend money on renewable energy. And then also, like, let's, let's just say, it. let's just, right. Let me just tell one thing about this okay. company. If you work at this company and they say, meet us outside in 10 minutes, where just, you know, just outside. You know you're going to get fired because yes. everybody gets fired outside the building. <laughs> well, because then, like, um, twenty minutes before the movie ends, after both sisters have like become sex workers and like are almost dead, I think one of them gets killed later on. Um, like twenty minutes before the movie ends, after all these things have happened, the other sister, the brunette, is outside the same office and gets fired from what appears to be the same job yeah. that she might have already had. Or, like, had while she was being a sex worker or a stripper, because she also brings up being a stripper. Although, being a sex worker in this movie just consists of getting into a pool and then failing to get on, like, a like a flotation device. Yes. And I was very confused, because it felt to me like... So, the narrative of the film is Neil Breen, super god guy, takes his fan, goes to Vegas to basically sort out the world by um, specifically dealing with corrupt politicians, um, corrupt businessmen... Who... And are the kind of like corrupt politicians who will buy AK-47s from gang members in the middle of the street in broad daylight. Or who will also spend a lot of time... This film seems to unfold over one day as well. Yes, yes. And and a lot happens in this day. And it's also um, the, so, the kind of government officials who say things like... I wrote this down just because it's an example of the wonderful dialogue in this movie. He says to another uh, government official... As an elected government official and his lawyer, I proudly make this donation as long as you do what I say. Yes. Good writing. The whole film, all the, all of the dialogue is just the literal what needs to happen. Yes. So he's like, we have a corrupt official who needs to literally blackmail this guy. So the dialogue is him saying, as a corrupt official, I need to blackmail you. And the other guy says, well, if you, I will send you... Do- it's the most literal dialogue ever. It's almost like they're reading just a stage direction or the character description yes. of themselves. So... And Neil Breen then will appear, and he'll do a lot of watching bad stuff happen, and then after it has happened, fix it. As opposed to stopping something, um, he's a very... Um, and there's also a guy in a wheelchair who lives in a half-destroyed house, which seems to double up as this pimp's... They seem like this awkward family of, like, a pimp, and he's like, they've all a got... A pimp and, like, two Russian arms dealers, and all the, like, corrupt politicians, and there's also, like, that one guy with, like, the long hair... And like the yes. white button-up shirt, who looks like he is like an IT tech from like 1982, and he's just yes. in this movie. Who is like still recovering from like a bad sh- bad shrooms trip from like 1985. Yes. Yes. Who's just like what the fuck? Um, I do want to point and, out uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, uh, which involves the guy who's in the wheelchair, where he wakes up in this abandoned house. 
gets in his wheelchair and like wheels himself over to the like Las Vegas sign, which seems to be like 10 feet away from him. He wheels yes. himself over to the Las Vegas sign or starts to wheel himself over. And then a guy just pushes falls out of his chair. Yeah. He like pushes the wheelchair over. And then uh, Neil Breen comes, makes that guy's eyes bleed, picks up the guy's wheelchair and then just wheels him like 10 feet over to the sign. And then and makes all wheels his him dreams back. come true. Yeah. And that's, that's the end because the guy's dying of cancer. So that's what he needed. No, he, he's dying of cancer and chemo that are both killing him. And he said, it's, it's, this is my dream. Well, his ex- his exact look- words were, I always wanted to see this before I die. This being the Las Vegas sign. The- I only and have he a month to lives live. lives in Vegas. Yes. <laughs> unless, Wait, unless, unless he, he like, he unless like, he- this was like a cross country chip that he made in his wheelchair. And he just got, that's the closest, like, this is as far as he's got. And then someone pushed him out. And if Neil Breen wasn't there, he probably would have just died on the floor. And then also Neil Breen can, he freezes time. Yes, but only does. only only people who are actually part of the film. So you'll see people in the background who aren't frozen, well, and also when people freeze, they it, just it's, it's Yelin style freezing, like uh, the magic yes, trick and in, in Yelin. It's the same thing where people just stop moving, and yes. uh, we're in Yelin. It genuinely feels like kind of magical and cool, and here it's like weird and awkward and wonderful in its own totally different way. And it's very often like some older actors who. They can't really stand still because they might have a bad back and they're kind of wobbling. Or, or there's that guy later on who holds like a gun to Neil Breen, like cause it, like when he drives up in the car next to him, and you can see his hands shaking because like he's trying, he's been holding up the gun for like the whole scene and can't yeah. move his arms, so he's like arms tired. Yeah. Oh, it's delightful. Yeah, there's all sorts. This is a mad film, and so the film seems to be this kind of. Um, it's very clearly a something you know saving the world. It's not not too different from the message of Mother, which was our one of our films yeah, of the year yeah. last year. It has a very similar message to you know look after the look after the planet, look after each other, don't be crazy. And Neil Breen is, I'm guessing, sort of this. But and and, and, and if you're a jerk, Neil Breen will crucify all of the corporations and corrupt politicians in the middle of the desert. Which, but is but he only crucifies maybe six people from Vegas well, but but he sa- he, he says i cr- i've i've d- done away with all of them because the humans couldn't or something along those lines and based on yeah. the other works of neil breen I'm, i've seen um let's just say his last film ends with him literally walking through a field of dead bodies of dead politicians and like dead quote-unquote international bankers which is weird because like i wrote it down this is like a combination of like info wars and like uh right-wing conspiracy theories and also this weird like leftist uh like ecological perspective along with um his later movie i think it's fateful findings no it's passed through i'm sorry uh passed through -through, uh has like a pro-immigration message so like there's that part of it that seems to be almost liberal and then this sort of super regressive borderline anti-semitic it's not so much in this movie but in like his later movies it's kind of there in a way that's you're not sure if Neil Breen just doesn't understand what the implications of that are, which is very possible, yeah. or if Neil Breen is just genuinely like Alex Jones, which is also completely possible. I have no idea yeah. what Neil Breen's opinion is on anything except for the fact that he hates television news and he hates the government. Absolutely. Like to me, it feels like his heart, he's probably intent, first from watching this film, it feels like his intentions are in the right place. Absolutely. And he kind of wants everyone to, you know, he's so sincere in those endless close like it feels like a lot of the- they shot a lot of the film and every close-up of neil breen they kind of just did in they thought we haven't got any close-ups of you neil and he went okay and he just shot himself every single close-up of him is like they're from the same shot yes and so he- he's so sincere about we need to oh, there's-, there's an amazing bit 
Michelle, isn't there? Where um, the woman who's just fired everybody, he walks past and gives her a rose and says, "Don't give up, don't well, give up." Also, you forgot the detail that, that the rose is initially broken, oh, and then he gives like it to wilted. her and he fixes the rose. I guess. And um, with the special effects budget, it seems to have gone completely on like sort of these um, graphics. Whereas he can't really even have like a puppet of like he will cut away from the wilted rose, a cut back, and it's back up. Yes, yes. he can't even like have a puppet sort of like a string. Although he can have this one tarantula tarantula plot uh, prop that he will have in a shot on a string being pulled. Uh, it's so so bizarre. Um, but he, I get the sense this guy has a very he's very sincere about saving the world and saving the planet, and everybody needs to treat everybody better. But it also feels like. I don't know how educated he is. I'm not saying he's stupid, but it's like the whole metaphor or the imagery. He uses like Christian imagery of Jesus, who is the son of God. Oh, but he yeah, seems he to does. Be, yes. He, that's, but he's seen... Uh, just like for people who haven't seen every Neil Breen film as I have, every single Neil Breen film, Neil Breen film stars Neil Breen as God. But Jesus isn't God, which is what I would like. He seems to be getting the lines crossed that oh, Jesus... That's a theological distinction that's actually hotly debated, Ross. So let's, well, let's not get into that. You know, I, I, know, I know what you mean. You know, I, theoretically, he's the son of God, but you know, also the, the Trinity means he is also. Of, of course, I do get that reading. But it does feel like he, he really likes that image of Jesus crucified. And he comes down, but then he's sort of acting like um, the all-seeing creator. And he's not really being sent down to die for anybody's sins well, or well, do anything. In he's a way, like, it's because Neil Breen is better than God, because God had to like create these other aspects of himself in order to save humanity. Whereas Neil Breen just he, Neil Breen is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in one being. So yeah, has to be. In the he's canon. also like a glass. He's also like a glass orb from a souvenir shop. Yes, yes. Two with a laser pen on it yes i i almost missed that the first time i watched the film because like i was like oh is that there's is there something on my tv but no he's like shining a like a laser laser pen pen. at this globe and you can barely see it because like it's the middle of the day in the desert against a clear crystal globe like i what i don't even understand what's supposed to be like being communicated by that and they're all there's also large stretches of this film that are like starman or the man who fell to earth yeah yeah in the, like, I don't know if you've seen Starman, it's about an alien, Jeff Bridges coming down to Earth, and then he falls in love with Karen Allen, and they have this relationship, and then they fall in love and have sex. And there's also these these shots where, just in case you were unsure that Neil Breen is playing an otherworldly being, he has, like, a some kind of polystyrene head mask yes. that will occasionally flash up to say, this is the true face of um, Neil Breen. And it's, like, this sort of kiss-looking mask thing with, like, a wig on it. It's like obviously isn't a actual mask. It's like a polystyrene head because it absolutely no articulation beyond like looking left and right in an extreme close up. Um, so he is this other, you know, looks like one of the characters from Ghosts of Mars coming down, <laughs> and um, he's fixing everything. And then the, the, the subplot with my favorite bit was so one the beginning once one girl is fired, she goes see she's then pushing a rub a fake baby in a pram who she has she cares a lot about this fake baby. There's also a lot of fake baby heads. In the in the desert, which I'm like, are they supposed to be fake baby heads or are they supposed to like be real dead babies? And just the budget wasn't there. I don't know because later on, there's a woman who is pushing a pram with a fake baby, and she's this is my baby. I'm like, well, you could literally leave that there and come back in five years and you'd be okay. <laughs> um, but she gets fired, and she's walking with her sister, who are they are twins apparently, and this and also none of the women wear bras in this film either. Yes, that is true. All. 
feels like a contractual stipulation that they probably had to do. It's very light. And they all have low-cut open tops randomly. Um, where you're like, what? what is, which is one of the aspects of the film that you think, is Neil Breen a bit of a pervy old man? Maybe, very likely. Um, and she will get fired. She goes to speak to her sister. And her sister says, this is the same day as she's being fired. Maybe an hour later. And her sister goes, well, there's nothing else for it, sister. You're going to have to be a sex worker. Yes. There's nothing else. Like I've just been working for this global we imagine company that somehow is just being shut down now um who probably has a phd and some great degrees but nope let's just cut to the chase you're gonna have to sell yourself for, you have to be a sex worker but it's okay because it's everybody's little secret in sin city or something that she says so then the first day she then oh, just real quick the sister later in that scene um oh, actually, i say i say later like immediately after that happens a guy riding a bike like drives oh yeah uh, like drives towards them and goes like whoa and then he just falls over on his bike because i guess they're so attractive and then they laugh yeah. at him and he just says whoa again and then the scene ends yeah and it's it just, just makes I think love like so much what is this film about and also like michelle said that when they say sex workers they, they, it seems like all they have to do is go places and like go to sleep on lilos in a pool because they don't do a lot and all they have to do is kind of like take their clothes off and then but then cover their breasts up and laugh for a long time yes. and drink lemonade that looks that is in a that looks like it's supposed to be champagne um this is a this is a wild film and also the thing that really threw me was like michelle said later on the sister who they encouraged the other sister to become a sex worker it feels like it should be a flashback but there's nothing in the film that would suggest this where suddenly she is getting fired from the same job and then she becomes a sex worker and it was like in what world did you sit and watch this edit and not think this is a bit confusing and i mean she also has like i guess a husband or a boyfriend who also lost his job and decides to start stealing from cars. Like he just uh, opens people's car doors and takes Hollister bags out and runs away. And then the same he- car park as well. He goes to one car park yes. and will rob all the cars. Um, And then because of him doing that, he tries to get into like a gang and that's like his way of saying, Hey, I'm tough. Look at all the like cool stuff. I stole Hollister bags. Uh, and then uh, they're like, yeah, but you were on our territory. So we're going to kill you now. And then they kill him. And that's kind of the end of that. Even though this guy, he's introduced like 40, 45 minutes into the movie dies at like minute 55. And later on, there's people who look at him like they know who he is, even though we've never seen them together. Yeah. And also, just like there's there's a lot of uh, shots that are repeated throughout. Basically, every reaction shot is used multiple times. It does feel like when he was editing, he just lifted scenes, dropped them. And then when he rendered out the film, he was like, oh, shit, it's wrong order. And didn't go back. He was like, well, I'm not waiting another eight hours for the whole <laughs> thing to render out again. Fuck it. That's the film. Like, you will see scenes and not even in like um, a traditionally nonlinear film where you will see flashes of something that's going to come back. It's just literally like a random thing dropped in that then later on you'll see the scene. That is the repeat. This it's just like a. What? It's it's one of those what? rare movies where it's almost impossible to divine the reason that any particular shot was chosen. Yeah, and it it, it is. But I, I, so I, I finished watching the film, Michelle, and me and my friend were like, "We need to watch the rest of this guy's movie." Yes. So we went on YouTube, fired up the trailer for the other films, and literally both of us said. We watched, I think it was, um, we watched the trailer for Double Down, which looks amazing. Mm-hmm. We also watched the trailer for something he'd done after this. And my friend said, well, I'm glad to see his style hasn't changed. No, and it's no. literally, you could, as you say, you could absolutely see the same tropes. We were like, <laughs> the Vegas and all the, the random mystical, like, semi-computer graphic stuff floating in. All the stuff of, like, I am a super, like, is it Double Down where he's a super hacker? Uh, yes, that's Double Down. <laughs> and then That in, one looks um, insane. 
in Fateful, Fateful Findings, Findings as well. In Fateful Findings, he plays a guy who died but didn't die, and that one's probably his most um, confusing in terms of plot. If if I had to like give a basic breakdown, Double Downs is most straightforward um, comparatively. I am here now is his most like mystical and cosmic, I suppose, uh, and abstract. Fateful Findings is his most confusing, and that's the one that kind of like took off as the uh, one everyone knew about. And then pass through is the only one is, that's got a Wikipedia page. That is true. And then pass through is his most. Uh, if you thought this movie was like on the nose about its politics, you need to see pass through because the second half of pass through is more or less Neil Breen in a fake TV studio giving a speech about how everything in the world is wrong. It's Damn. it's wonderful. So Michelle, as my introduction to Neil Breen, it was certainly a. Um... A memorable wild ride. Um, you keep you keep going back and saying, "Oh, I love it so much! I love it." I saw this as like an incredibly funny, um, incompetent film. And I know we've done a lot of these. We go all the way back to when we did the last podcast. When we talked about Birdemic, and the, we have the, one of the recurring things is us saying watching these films and seeing different points of view and artistic sensibilities when they don't have resources. And this, to me, honestly, I was just found myself a lot of this movie against my better judgment. Just kind of laughing at the film and laughing at yeah, the yeah. efforts put into it, and just being completely bemused by all the decisions, but also being like, it was, it was, it's super, super entertaining. I'm not going to take that away from it. Like, it's ridiculous. It's not like it never gets to a point where you just go, oh my god, this is really hard to watch. Like it is constantly riotously, <laughs> entertainingly um, odd and weird and confusing, um, and it has character and it has. There's definitely. Uh, I could watch this film and say, I get why there's this cult around Neil Breen, because who, who is this guy? More so than The Room, there's definitely a sense of, um, like, a sensibility and, like, um, a belief system of some sort <laughs> yes. being shown. Um, I say I enjoyed it more than The Room, because there's just so much more going on, and it's so much more, like, ambitious than a film like that. But I would absolutely put this in kind of a so-bad-it's-good category, which I know you're not a huge believer in, um, but I, I can't, you tell me, Michelle, how, how much does this film mean to you and how, why does it mean that much? To you? Um, I wouldn't say it means as much as like Birdemic, for example. Um, like I have yeah. an, a strong emotional reaction to Birdemic, which we explored in that episode a while back. But as far as modern, modern auteurs go, and you have to admit Neil Breen, good or bad, is an auteur in every sense of the word. Yes. As long as seeing one film and some trailers, I could say even the trailers are Neil Breen trailers. Yes. Like, <laughs> I, um, I agree with you there. I'd say there's no like auteur working right now that gets me more excited to see his films, even more than like Terrence Malick. And I, uh, Terrence Malick's probably my favorite director of all time, but That's why. I've seen a lot of Terrence Malick movies and they're all wonderful and they're all, they're all great in their own little ways. And, but I kind of know what I'm getting. And to some degree, I know like what the themes are going to be in a Neil Breen movie. I know how it's going to look, but the way that he presented to me each time is so different and so like, I cannot predict what's going to happen in his movies ever. It's so surprising. And for someone like me who watches a lot of movies and can is, is familiar enough with how movies are structured and how movies are made, that for the most part, I can I know where movies are going and I know what's going to happen and I don't feel surprised very often. To, for someone, yeah. for every one of his movies to surprise me and delight me as much as they do, it's such a unique kind of, I guess, gift that Neil Breen has. I, I don't know if... It's always this question of like, is he a good director? Is he a bad director? I don't even know if that's really applicable to Neil Breen. I, I suppose like in the technical sense, he's a bad director because his movies don't make linear sense. They do things that are generally not done in film for a good reason. They're clearly like egotistical and weird and they don't make any sense. But I just find him so charming and so lovable 
uh, in their weirdness and the fact that the more the more you watch them, the richer it grows. I feel like I was where I was where you are at right now when I watched my first Neil Brain movie, and then the more you watch, you're gonna develop into this cult with me ross trust me where you'll see you'll see these same things come up every single time and you'll see these like themes explored in this in totally different ways but clearly by the exact same person in the exact same mindset and it's just fascinating to watch him kind of grow like if you uh start a double down and move to pass through there's there's growth there it's not quite linear growth in terms of like he developed into a better filmmaker but you can see yeah. like he's taking different paths each time he's not staying static and uh the reason i wanted to talk about his films in general uh was because i do believe that at least one of them deserves to be in the canon if for nothing else to to put it there and say hey look at this isn't this something isn't this an yeah. artifact that we can kind of stare at but more than that i just find his films to be genuinely exciting in a way that most films aren't to me. Okay. I mean, and, I, and, and, I and at a certain, I, at a certain point after you've watched enough Neil Breen, it stops being about whether it's good or bad. It's just, is this a Neil Breen film? Like, yeah, it's a Neil Breen film. So I guess it's, it's, that's what it is. It's, it supersedes good and bad in a weird way. It definitely has that entertainment value. And it definitely, like I said, I finished watching this film. Even my friend who doesn't even watch half of the, the stuff that I kind of watch that I don't make him suffer through a lot of bad things. But I remember watching 10 minutes of this, be like, you need to watch this with me. And even he was like, we need to watch the other ones. Like, we need to get... And even my girlfriend, who we she likes bad films, she would probably really enjoy this as well. So it's like, a, I think it's not just something... I think it is a film that anyone will be entertained by. And I do think everyone talks about The Room as this kind of the pinnacle of... At least in terms of exposure and the cult of bad films, The Room is like the one case study everyone sort of looks I think this is definitely a better film than The Room. I think it has more to it. And it, I agree... I agree with a, lot, with a lot of you said, and you saying I could probably develop. I could already. I can feel myself going. I need. I need to get hold of this guy's other films. And I know there's this whole cult around getting his films on physical media, and the the mission to people to go buy the that people are ferocious about trying to get these films. And I know that they're very hard to get. And I know that you yeah, are kind of even like you, ordering them straight from Neil Breen. I've ordered two of his movies straight from him, and they took like six or seven months to show up and it's not like they showed up in elaborately packaged like dvds they're in like a cdr case with like a laser printing on them that says the name of the movie yeah <laughs> yeah um i'm i'm like on the fence about putting it in the canon because i'm like i don't want to put it in i don't know what to do michelle this is like the first time i've been so conflicted because i don't I mean, want to it's, finish it's, the it's podcast. up to you if if, if you want to break my heart and not put in the canon that's fine you're allowed to do how about we do this i got an idea how about we do our um thing that we were going to do where we go through every movie that's that we talked about decide the official final canon and then for the last part you will say whether this goes in the canon how does that let's do that right let's do that okay so put put a pin in it uh so the first movie we ever talked about on this endeavor was lake mungo which we put in the canon and ross would you still agree with that absolutely yeah i think about that film a lot yeah, I would too. I definitely agree with that as well. Um, episode two is Naked by Mike Lee, uh, which did not get in the canon. Ross, you put it up for the canon. Would you still put it up for the canon? I would say I still love that film a lot, yeah. And with um, a lot of people, the Phantom Thread just came out, and a lot of people seem to be, um, I think the Les- Leslie Manville connection, people seem to be talking about Mike Lee, and um, people seem to be going back and disc- like Na- Naked seems to be the most popular, probably American, um, for American people. Um, Mike Lee film and it's nice to see a lot of people going to see other things um, but just with this whole people talking about Mike Lee again in some capacity it makes me think back how much I love Mike Lee and how much I love Naked so I would still 100% nominate it in and uh, how would you feel would you still not want it in 
Um, I would still not want it in. Uh, it's it's a good movie, like I said when we were talking about it, but it's not the kind of thing that uh, I even really think about. Like ever. So I'm with you. And number um, three, so was... number three, Zorn's Lemma, uh, the film by uh, Hollis Frampton. So Ross, you didn't want this yeah, in the I canon. I did. Uh, are you still going to uh, keep it out? Yeah, I'm still not putting the alphabet movie. That's why I think. Yes, I'm, the alphabet movie. Putting. Fair enough. I'm not. Yeah. Um, I do want to watch Rufus Things. Though. I want to watch more of his work. But you should get the Criterion Collection be... edition. It's really good. Yeah, I'm hoping to bring it out over here, but yes, sorry, um, And then after that was Apocalypto, um, which uh, we agreed was in the canon. Um, do you still feel that way, Ross? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I do too. So that one can definitely yes. stay in. Um, yeah. Next is After Last Season, uh, which I love this film. I love this film. Yes. I this might be my favorite movie we talked about, besides possibly one we'll get to later. And I'll bring that up then. But of the movies we talked about, this is definitely in my like top three that we have. But I think it's definitely. Yeah, I do think about this a lot, and I always I, the weird thing is now, whenever I think about, um, I don't know why. I think I probably went into into. If you want to go back and get the, get this podcast before it goes down, um, I think I probably brought it up. But it does. I was time I think of Shane Carruth now. I always think of yes, after the last yes. season as like as like a PS. But I don't know why. But for some reason that film has always attached itself to kind of the Shane Carruth sort of filmmaking vibe. So I feel like it is very much like a Shane Carruth esque film what he could have been if he didn't have the complete package of the talent he has. It does feel like a film that aiming for that sort of ambition. And I still think about those those like cardboard box rooms. Um a lot of that image has really, really stayed with me. So I, I'm I'm so happy you introduced me to that film and that we both agreed to get it into Canon. I stand by that. Hundred percent. Very nice. Um, and then next was Goodbye Dragon Inn, which you brought up, Ross. Yes, contra- controversial, which um I thought was gonna be a slam dunk and you didn't put it in. Um, and um, reason- but you also said you may want to put it back in. Yes, because so. um, the reason I didn't put it in the first place was because of how that lady ate rice. <laughs> like, yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> but now that I'm removed enough from that, I think that we should put <laughs> Goodbye Dragon in to, into the canon. It is a movie I think about quite a bit. And um, even at the point that we were recording it, I said that that was a silly reason for me not to like the movie. It was just like, a <laughs> yeah. personal thing. And like I... I got over it. So you have to stay true to yourself in the moment, Michelle. I understand. Uh, But goodbye dragon in is in the canon. So that's one added. Uh, Nothing's attracted so far. Um, Next we have August underground, which was episode seven, uh, which we have in the canon. Ross, do you want to keep it in there? I'm going to say yes, because it's still a film that has become like a new benchmark for me. Like whenever I think about horrible, horrible things, (laughs) it's become the thing where I'm like, yeah, but it's not August underground. It's not, or even, I enjoyed talking about the sequels as well, which weren't officially in the canon, Mm -hmm. but we did do a bonus episode. Um, so those films to me kind of blur together, but yeah, I think them, I still think about them a lot and they have really become like, even in my own personal canon of fucked up movies that have left a lasting impact that is really gone way to the top of just being memorable and, um, sliced into my membranes of my memories. Um, so yeah, I, I still stand by that. How about you? Uh, yeah, definitely. 100%. Uh, and I'm really excited that there's, I think there's, there was some VHS label. I have to get to the link, but some VHS label announced that they were going to do editions of August Underground VHS, which is perfect. I know, I know you have That's the good. Blu-rays, right? I do. I got the off the me, but I was really disappointed because the Blu-ray came. It's all three films on one Blu-ray and like zero special features. Uh, and I'm very much a special features person. And I know that there's loads of existing special features, but it's like bare bones. So I was like, Ugh, sick. but no, I do own them. I've, and the signed as well by him. Nice. So, uh, yeah. Um, after that, we watched a little film called Inland Empire by David Lynch. Uh, Ross, you brought this up. Far I'm from assuming, a little film. I'm assuming you that's still a want it in the canon. I, I would, that's one of, that's maybe all the films that are in the canon. That's probably my favorite film that is in the canon. Um, so yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, easy. Like of 
of all the choices, this one's probably the easiest. It's Inland Empire. It's the best David Lynch film, which means it's one of the best films ever made, period. I'd probably have it in my top 10 ever. So yeah, Inland Empire has to be awesome. Um, after that was probably the, ar- the, uh, the one we argued about the most, which was Red Riding Hood. Um, I believe I made oh, yeah. a point very well about why it deserves to be in the canon. Uh, Ross, you didn't think so at the time, and I'm excited to hear that you've come around, right? I still stand by. I, I, no. The only time I ever think about that film is when I like struggle to remember bits from it. Or when, when I hear when you Fever Ray. Yeah, or Fever Ray. Yeah, when I hear Fever Ray, I struggle to remember bits, and I kind of remember bits, but then I also... I'm more entertained by the podcast we recorded about Red Riding Hood than I am by Red Riding Hood. Okay, fair um, enough. So I'm still not, I, just not my bag. Um, after that, we had One Hour Photo, which got in the canon. Uh, you suggested. Do you stand by that suggestion? I do. It's still one of my... I'd probably put it in my top 50 ever. I, I do love that film a lot. How about you? You were surprisingly um, impressed by it. I was. But now that like time has gone by, I don't remember a lot of it. Oh, okay. Which I feel like it was one of those like I don't want to say flash in the pan because it wasn't. There's still moments I remember from it. I still think it's an it's a very good movie, but um I think I, can see I that. might bump that one out. Yeah. Sorry, Robin Williams and Mark Romanek. Um and then after that we had Millennium Actress. Um and this isn't gonna get in the canon because Ross hates anime. But Ross, I'll give you the I, I, the ability to I say can't. whether you want it in the canon or not. I can't remember it. I just what is it about anime and me, honestly? I just can't. <laughs> I remember bits, but I just it's such like a just whatever the the hardwiring my mind just what when I was created there wasn't the no one connected those fucking membrane or what the fuck they are. I'm sorry, I just can't remember a lot of it. So okay, fair enough. My, I still stand by my other opinion. <laughs> Although I do want to just bring up real quick, someone oh. asked me on Tumblr like a couple days ago what movies like make me cry the most, and that was in my like top five of movies that if I watch it, I will like sob while watching it. So what was number one? Um, number one is probably your brother. Remember, which we will, we would have gotten to if we went long enough the podcast. But you know, we'll talk about that in a minute because I have a lot to say about that. Yes. Um. After that, we did after hours. Uh. And uh, Ross, I think even when we were doing it, you were like, I'm not sure if this should be in the canon. Uh. Yeah, you... I don't think I would. Sorry, I don't mean to talk over you then. Uh, you yeah, I, 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 I probably if we did, went around again, I probably wouldn't nominate. I just wanted you to watch it and kind of wanted to have a discussion about it with with somebody. You know what's um, actually my favorite part about watching it is that um, after watching it, I had uh, a better reference point for when I watched um, uh, The Night is Short, Walk On Girl. Right, okay. Which is a great movie. I actually probably like that a little more than After Hours, but After Hours is still a good movie. Not it, does feel like after hours, it does feel like After Hours is a film that it gets referenced a lot in other films now. Mm-hmm. Like, even Good Time, they, the, the Safdies say, oh, After Hours is like a, some kind of touchstone. So I think it's a good film to have, like, to watch and kind of get what the reference is for that, like, that kind of nightmarish tone. Um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I I think he probably I put it in like a Martin Scorsese personal favorites canon, but I wouldn't all time. I I get it. It's, it's more of like a personal favorite thing as opposed to like this is an all time great. Um, but I do think it's one of Scorsese's most underrated films and a personal favorite of mine. But I I wouldn't I wasn't gonna fight with you and say like what the fuck are you doing, Michelle? Put it in. Okay. Um, and the next three are I think our three best like our best run of three that we did in the entire podcast. First up is uh, we did a mega mix of Lillian Schwartz movies and Pixelation yes. was the one we chose to put in the canon. Um, do you a still think that that one belongs in the canon? B is there a different one you would choose out of those movies you watched? No, no, I still because I, I watched them again recently actually for like a reference. I was like working on a project and I kind of needed them for like a reference or something. Um, and that was the one. I went back to that and I still have that kind of, um, I think we put that in because it was like the first one, yes. it was narr- like uh, chronologically, and I still, when I watch that one, it kind of makes me feel a buzz just a little bit more than the rest, because um, I think it just has something about it, like being the first one out of the gate, so I still stand by, like all, I love that podcast and all those films, and that's the one I would still 
put in. How about yep. you? Yeah, definitely. I would agree. I mean, I would personally put in UFOs, but Pixelation is also a great movie. So, um, but then after that, we went to Miss Forty Five, which was your suggestion. I'm assuming you still wanted in. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that one's a slam dunk. That one is an easy pick to be in the canon. Um, I will make the bold claim, even though I don't think it's that bold because most of these kinds of movies are bad. I think it's the best rape revenge movie ever. Yeah, and I, I constantly like, I'm, I probably don't even go a week where I don't think about um her in the nun outfit in slow motion yes, like, shooting yes. people. I think about iconic. that all the time. Exactly. And then after that, we had um, Freddie got my fingered. Favorite. I'm yes, sure Freddie got fingered. One of the best movies ever made. Um, and Ross, do you still want to keep that in the canon? Honestly, I do. Like, I'm... thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I um I think about that a lot as well now. Um, it's, it's a classic. It's, it is forever. It, it is forever entwined with my relationship with you and this podcast as well. So it's okay. um it, it's a become a personal favorite for personal reasons. Um, and then during the year end special, we had actually quite a few things we talked about. Um, we talked about uh here the ones that went in the canon are this house's people in it, Sunspring and Patterson. But we also talked about um everybody wants some um that one that was in four by three ratio about the young girl American Honey. Um, and then what was the other one I suggested? Oh, uh, Dead Slow Ahead, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think I think that's just had um, that must have just had some kind of online release because I've seen a lot of people logging it. Yeah, it, I think it finally got like an official release outside of festivals. So yeah, it might be on like movie or something like that. Um, so out of those, let's start at the beginning. So uh, Dead Slow Ahead, would you want to put in the canon? Uh, no, I still I I just remember that one shot where she's or he or she the cleaning something and the camera like recedes like the zoom mm-hmm. is really back massive. I remember that, but the rest of it kind of blurred with leviathan a weird in a way yeah they're pretty similar i love both of them but i totally get that um then we had everybody wants some which is not getting the fucking canon ever sorry ross i think that's one of the worst movies i've ever seen but that's fine um (laughs) i still like that film but i i I, um i appreciate your opinion (laughs) okay um and then we had uh, american honey which uh i i remember occasionally but it's not the kind of movie it's like a three and a half star movie so uh it's not getting the canon based on that but then the ones that it's a film oh sorry you continue I was going to say, it's a film that I, I loved upon release and I loved uh, like the, the way that film arrived into my life at that point. Like, it, I, I was just, it was like one of those years where there wasn't anything like that. And finally, I, and I, I've had like a rocky relationship with Andrea Arnold and that film kind of came as like the best Andrea Arnold film I'd seen. And I just kind of really flipped out over it. But I haven't gone back and watched And I'm someone who will usually, if I've got a top 10 of a year, I will have usually watched all of those films twice within like the following year. I always go back to them. That's the one I haven't gone back to. But I do intend to, so I'm. I start can kind of. I'm not fussed that it didn't get in the canon. I don't think I would fight for it to, at least until I've seen it again, which doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. But um, got fond memories of that film. But like I said, I'm not. I'm not distraught that it didn't get in our canon. Okay, and then we had the ones that actually went into our canon originally. Um, do you still want this house of people in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think about that all the time. Yeah, yes. I do too. I actually had a friend who re- watched it recently for the and then delved deep into like the backstory. It reminded me how much I love that movie. Uh, then we have yeah, yeah, Patterson. Um, which was which our number I'm one still... movie of that year, right? For Dim the House Lights. Yeah, which just the optimism and the just the simple pleasures of that film, I are still kind of un unmatched in like modern cinema. I haven't seen anything in the the year since then that kind of just matches like the just how lovely that film is, um, and the way it celebrates like just people who are artists and just creating things for the pleasure of it. Um, I I love that film. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's uh, just so wonderful to watch. And then finally, Sunspring. Uh, my favorite film of the past 10 years, maybe, except for possibly, uh, what's that one movie that uh, uh, Terrence Malick made? Fuck. To the Wonder. Not Night of Cups. Uh, no, not quite Night of Cups, but To the Wonder, Terrence Malick's best movie. But uh, no, Sunspring is my second favorite after that. So I obviously want to keep in the canon. Ross, do you think it should still be in there? 
Um, I think it should be just because I, I can't think about you without thinking about Sunspring. Okay. It's not a thing I've gone back and watched or felt passionately about, but I do think, the reason I put it in, I think it is an important step in some sort of development of like cinema and like involving robots and artificial intelligence and all that kind of thing. Um, so I, I still keep it in because it's just like, I can't think of this podcast without thinking about Sunspring. Cool. And then after that, we went to uh, the Wachowskis Bound, uh, which yes. is your suggestion. Uh, do you still want it? 100% yes. Cool. And I 100% say yes as well. Uh, in fact, there was, uh, this isn't really related to Bound, but I mean, it kind of is. There was a customer in the store yesterday who sounded exactly like Jennifer, just a fun fact. Oh my God. Um, after that, we went to uh, two different movies by pioneering women directors. One was uh, The Birth, the Life, and the Death of Christ by Alice Blochet. And the second one was The Seashell and the Clergyman by, oh, fuck. Jemaine Dulac. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, not, neither of those got in the canon. Uh, are you still going to hold off on me there, Ross? Uh, yeah, I, I can kind of remember The Birth, the Life, and the Death of Christ. Um, but again, that's not something I've really thought about since. But I was I was happy to watch them, and I, I liked this podcast for seeing things like that. But um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, after that, we have Gus Van Zandt's Elephant. No, Larry Clark's Elephant. No, what's the guy's name? Alan Clark. Alan Clark. Not Larry Clark's the guy I hate, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want to see so, his elephant. No, I don't. That would... It's probably pedophilic. Um, so... Alan Clark's Elephant. Uh, you suggested it. Uh, still in there? Yes, for me, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would agree. And I will eventually get to Gus Van Zandt's Elephant at some point. One day. Um, man, we had a really good run of episodes uh, here where we also had The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Your first Greenaway, right? Absolutely. I love that film. I think that's one of the, the top three that we've ever done. In terms of just quality of films, that's easily way up there within Lind Empire like one of the best ones we watched see what's funny is I would have agreed with you before I saw other Peter Greenaway films and somehow those are even better so uh yeah but yeah uh, I would also agree it still definitely deserves to be in there Peter Greenaway is one of the great directors and that's one of his so um after that we came to a movie that I kind of forgot we did for this podcast called Confessions uh Ross you nominated that one uh would you still nominate it um no I wouldn't no it was good to rewatch it and sort of refresh my opinion on it but I uh yeah, I, no, I still movie, like but... it, but yeah, not not monumental in any way. Um, after that, we had Wet Hot American Summer, which was my suggestion. I obviously love that movie quite a bit. Ross, you weren't so taken on it at the time. How do you feel about it now? I'm still kind of the same. I think it's good for like a laugh. I put it on for like a laugh and a giggle, um, but it still feels like minor in some way to me. I don't know why. I think it's because I don't have that long relationship with it. Yeah, no, that's, that's um, I, I I still wouldn't necessarily put it in. Cool. Um, and then we came to She's Gotta Have It, uh, which we originally recorded for Spike Lee's birthday and then didn't release it for like three months after that. So uh, <laughs> happy birthday, Spike Lee. Anyways, uh, She's Gotta Have It. That's get, is that getting in? Um, no, no, I, I agree what we came to. Like, it's um, it's good to see like the, the Spike Lee debut, but I, I don't think it's um, canon worthy. Yeah, I would agree. Um, after that, we came to a little film called Yeelin, uh, which has some parallels, as we discussed, with Neil Breen's work. Um, you did not put Yeelin in the canon. Uh, would you put it in now? I think I would, actually, because yeah, I do think about that a lot. Um, nice. A lot more than I expected to. It did stay with me in a weird way. And I do every time I see it like pop up, or if I'm just on Letterboxd, and I see it on somebody's profile, or so, somebody logs it, I always go, oh, that's a good film. I need to watch that again. So I think that's a, a very good sign. I would... I would probably put it in. So let's let's reimburse it back into the canon. Very nice. Now we have 100% more African films than most other films. Hell yeah. Um, Bad Timing was, after that, Nicholas Rogue's film. Um, I did not put it in the canon at the time. I still would not. How about you, Ross? Uh, like, again, it's one of those personal favorite films that, I, after having out and talking to you, I can, I don't think. I do like that film a lot, and I like how it, 
you know where it is in Nicholas Rogue's back catalogue, but I probably wouldn't I wouldn't nominate it again. I don't think. Okay, so we made the right that's, choice. That's fair. Um, after that uh, was the most heartbreaking ep- uh, where Ross said that Doggy Woggy's Poochie Woochie is the worst film he's ever seen or something along those lines. Uh, the um, most irritating fucking thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, really, I hate this film. Like, I don't even think you he, I think he was saying it as a joke, but the mark. Yeah, like, when we talked about it, you were you thought it was okay. Yeah, I think I, I, w- I was a lot warmer to it. But and I think back to it, I just think, oh, what an irrit... I, oh, I have no interest to ever seeing that ever again. Um, that's tragic, Ross, get, get, but I have to have like a headache just thinking about it in a weird way. But uh, I, that's, that's, that's I a good I could, sign. I could, I could appreciate the love for it. I could see how people do love it, but I just okay. I'm not bothered. Sorry. Fair enough. Uh, so Wuggies. after that, we had Skip. I, was, I almost said Skipopolis. Skitsopolis, um, by Steven Soderbergh, uh, who recently came back from retirement to make a couple other movies. Uh, do you st- would you still nominate that film for the canon? Um, weirdly, maybe not. I would probably nominate it to talk about, it, but I don't. I actually don't think in the bigger scheme it's a part. Like looking at all these other films we've got in there. For some reason, it kind of stands out to me as like something that I think might be a, is not quite up there with them. Doesn't really have like the historic value or the. Again, it's more like me and my sort of autorists. I like where it stands as a Steven Soderbergh film, and I do love it to bits, but I maybe don't think it's quite up there with all these other films. What about you? Uh, yeah, I might agree with you. Now, I think at the time, uh, we were kind of excited to start recording again. A, and also I was excited to see a movie that was kind of really different. But uh, looking back on it now, I don't think. Yeah. So that's I still like right the now film we're a lot, two but out and two in. No, it's okay. Look at that. Rewrite history. <laughs> um, after that, we did uh, a movie that I think might be of the ones I had you do for this podcast. Might be one of your favorites besides uh, After Last yeah. Season. We did Landscape Suicide, yeah. Uh, which yeah, I, by I, James I, Benning. And, yeah, sorry, you speak. I was saying I, I love this. I I every single day since seeing this, I've been like, I need to watch another James Benning film. I just haven't. The, every day I, since not seeing, it, I haven't seen a new one. I've been like, oh shit, I need to get around to that. To the point where I like I was on Amazon and I got like a book about it's like one of the few monographs about James Benning and like Amazon warehouse deals must have had like some beat up copy and I managed to get it for like seven pounds and I bought it and I was like, oh this is it's got a lot of stuff his writing in there, there's a lot of like photos from all his works. Um so yeah, I think about this director a lot. He's one of the directors I really need to do a deep dive into. Um yeah, I just think it was great. Uh, like if I'm gonna do a top three of what we put in the canon, it probably American Dreams, Inland Empire, and then Top four because I can't really leave one out. I suppose after last season and then Cook the Thief, the Wife, and love. When I think of the podcast, those are the ones I really think about a lot. Nice. So. I mean, that's a that's a great list. Um, yeah, I would also yeah, I mean, obviously a, definitely keep it in the canon. Definitely, the canon overall is a pretty sweet list. Looking at it, yeah. Um, after that, we went to uh, the lure, uh, or the lore, however you want to pronounce it. Yes. Um, I did not put that in the canon, and I still wouldn't. Uh, would you still nominate it, Ross? Um, probably not. No, I think it was one of those things where. I was really high on the film and I wanted to like talk about it with you. And uh, but as I think back, um, I still I'm not sure my opinion of the film hasn't changed. But I don't think I would. Um, I think it was more like one of those things where it sort of hits a, a few personal buzz things that you enjoy in films. Um, and I don't. I wouldn't necessarily nominate for one of the greatest, most important films of all time. Okay, but people should go check it out. Yeah, it's yeah, kind it's of under It's a good so movie. Go watch it. Um, and then episode thirty-one was Red Spirit Lake, which did indeed get in the canon. Uh, would you still oh, put yeah. Red Spirit and Lake in the canon? Absolutely. I've just on Letterbox. I when I watch for my write in my notes, I always like write like notes about the film, and then I usually change them into to turn them into like a Letterbox capsule. And then I got in that habit of doing that. So then I have like a backlog. So I I try and go back and fill them in. Which if you were following my Letterbox, you might see films I've watched like in December only getting reviewed now. Um, because I like just to log them for myself. Long story short, I recently went and I'd only just done the Red Spirit, Spirit Lake for like a few weeks after seeing it. 
And just talking about it again and thinking about it, like I realised none of that film had really left my mind and the experience of it and the texture and all the aesthetic stuff had um, really, really stayed with me. Um, so yeah, I, I really, really liked that. Nice. Still, still um, kind of... And then after that, we had our year-end special again. Um, so the movies we discussed were, uh, the ones that got in the canon were Get Out, War for the Planet of the Apes, Sleep Has Your House, and Mother. And then the two that didn't get in the canon were, uh, shit, what did I, oh, A Song to Song, and what did I nominate, Ross? What did I nominate? Um, Hold on. I, I'm, sleep Has a... It was one of my top 10 of the year. It moved on to my third. Oh, The Evil Within. Duh. Oh yes, yeah. I'm I'm so happy with all those choices. Uh, how they were. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, that one's pretty straightforward. Uh, those the more recent ones are easy to do, I suppose. And then on this episode, uh, Jerry did not get in the canon, but uh, I don't think we need to re- reevaluate that since we just did that like 30 minutes ago. But here's the big drum roll: is I am here. Dot 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 now by Neil Breen going to be in the canon, Ross? Yes. Nice. We did it. We did it, people. We end- We started with the canon. We ended with the canon. They're both mine. I won the podcast. Yes. Everything has come full circle. The arc of this podcast is complete. Um, and I was really adamant going into this that I was like, I'm not just going to put it in just be like the guy goes, Michelle, I'm doing it for you because I thought let's. I'm going to come down with an iron fist and we're building an actual canon and I can't just fucking compromise my taste, my morals <laughs> for Neil Breen, whoever he might be. But I'm really excited to watch more Neil Breen films. And um, I think that, that must be a good sign. So. I'm going to give that little inkling of interest. I say an inkling, it's quite a big um, interest in watching more of his films. Um, and this might be, like you said, it might be the long, entertaining road into the cult of Neil Breen, which you know, might be the next podcast. Who knows? So we're going to put it in. He's going in the canon. Nice. Um, so Neil that's... Breen has achieved canon status again. Um, I'm sure should, he's already Should I run canon. down the complete canon then? Or since do people already hear it? so that... People can... I think they'll know yeah. it now. The, 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 there's 14 movies in it. That's all that matters. We ended yes. 14 movies in our canon. Uh, and that's like out of uh, 33 episodes. So we were we were discerning. Yeah, we did well. I'm happy. That um, was a pretty good canon. It's, it's also, for people, it's not too daunting. Like, you know, we click on the thousand greatest films ever. Yes, yes. Here are 14. Um, and some of them are short films. So they'll take like a couple of minutes to watch. Um, and you can also watch all the other films we also kind of nominate and didn't. They're all worth watching in some capacity. Even Doggy Woggy's Poochie Wooches. Um, uh, you can get high in. Even Red Riding Hood. I mean, it's nice to look at. It's okay. Fair enough. Um, Hell yeah! But uh, now that we did that, uh, we're going a little long, so we'll kind of like keep it. I I say we're going to keep it brief. We probably won't because it's us two and we're talking about movies. But um, let's talk about a couple movies, uh, however, however many we get to, that we were thinking about putting into the canon, but we never really got around. Is there any one that or two that stick out in your mind, Ross? Um, yeah, let me just fire this out, because I did have a list, like a private list and letterbox, where I kept putting films in where I thought, that could go in the canon. You that are canon. more prepared than me. Um, so I would say, before we did this podcast, yeah, this one, being in the final episode, we thought, should we do some kind of grand statement with it? Do you want to, Michelle asked me, do I want to, because we decided to end the podcast after me suggesting Jerry. And she said, do you want to change your nomination to something different um, while it is the last one? And for an inkling, I said, well, let's do um, Stop Making Sense, which is the Jonathan Demi film, the Talking Heads concert film, which is my favorite film ever. Um, And Michelle said, if this was not the last episode, I probably would call you out. So that's very acclaimed, which I then agreed with and thought, you know what? It is quite an acclaimed film. um, So I didn't nominate it, but it was on my list just because I thought it'd be fun for us to talk about that film. But it is my favorite film of all time. Um, for reasons uh, I will not go into because I'll be here all week. Um, but other films on my list, the big one I wish we'd got to, um, and I'm sad we didn't, would be probably Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. Oh, yes. And you and me both love that film. 
Exactly. And I would have liked to just, have, I haven't seen that film in a while and just would have liked to have had that watch with it and then for you to kind of rewatch it and us both come and sit and kind of pick out that film. Um, so that was one. What else would I have nominated? There's a film called The Honeymoon Killers, which I, I kept wanting to nominate, but it was either, it was just, it was either too similar to something we just watched or it's like a 1970s film. Um, it also is available on Criteria as well. A lot of these picks, a lot of my films I watch from like labels, Arrow, or it's an Arrow film over here, but it's like Criteria in America. But again, I felt like it needed, it'd be good to talk about The Honeymoon Killers and people to watch it and discover it. I've heard good um, things about it, just never uh, got around to it myself. Yeah, so that's one. Maybe Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 I would have liked to have talked about. That's um, a, that would have been an interesting discussion because uh, as, maybe, maybe people don't know, I was going to say as people know, but I really dislike all the Halloween movies except for three and the two Rob Zombie ones. So yeah, so we could really get into that. Um, so that was that would be one. Um, I'll just go through mine before you go through yours, so we're not going back and forth too much. Even this is the last episode. We're not going to stand on ceremony here, as Ben would say. Well, <laughs> we're going to get through this and not leave you here forever. Um, I would probably say that the Coen Brothers film, The Man Who Wasn't There, I would love to nominate because that's very close to my favorite Coen Brothers film, and not one that often gets given that title. Maybe it's not the best one, but there's just something about that that I thought would, would be really good for us to talk about. Um, the, the controversial ones that I had in my back pocket, which when Michelle kind of nominated Red Riding Hood, she got, went in thinking, this is not going to get in, but we're going to have fun <laughs> talking about it. The two films I sort of had for that um, would probably be Kevin Smith's Tusk and then um, Ridley Scott's Hannibal, which I can hear Michelle's <laughs> blood going, what the fuck? Movies um, I have previously like made fun of you for liking. Exactly, and um, I thought you, I thought you were going to say Margaret. No, that was that, that, that's again that's the stop making sense argument where I think that film just has a certain stature now where people wrongly it, I don't yeah. think, but you know what I mean. I feel like it. I would not really. It's a lot of this podcast. The fun of it was really nominating films people maybe wouldn't nominate for this. Um, yes, yes. Kind of. So yeah, I maybe would never have got into that, but I would have just liked to talk to you about it. Um, so like film films like Hannibal and Tusk, people might say it's cowardice that I never actually um, squared off with you about these, um, which maybe have something to do with it. Um, but it never happened. Maybe in another some other other life or another podcast that'll happen. But I would um, I was ready to kind of fiercely defend those films, or if not Kevin Smith's Tusk, it would be maybe Red State, which is a film I like more than Tusk. But I thought Tusk would be if if this film had any kind of following, that would be the one people would be going, oh, what's going to happen here? Um, so yeah, the, that, those are two. And Ridley Scott's Hannibal is a film that I will like go to the death to like defend um, the good things about that film. Fucking crazy um, person, Ross. And then anything else? Things like there's other things that I would like bringing out the dead, but I, I know how you feel on like on that. And then um, last but not least, I would probably have discussed uh, what else is there. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. There's a, a film I would I would also like to bring up that I watched last year, Michelle. I think you should really check out because I think it's something you'd really enjoy. It's a film called Beyond the Hills, which is directed by Christian Mungu, I think is how you say it. And it's um a, a, the letterbox caps the plotline is a drama centered on the friendship between two young women who grew up on the same orphanage. One has found refuge at a convent, convent in Romania, refuses to leave with her friend who now lives in Germany. Which doesn't sound very exciting, but let me say this is the best exorcist, exorcism film since the exit. So that is. Very impressive statement. Yes, and it's um, yeah. So I would say I would love to have you to watch that. It's probably the most recent film that I'd watched that I would thought this is going. I need to talk to Michelle about this, and we just haven't got around to it. Um, so how about you, Michelle? Have you got anything on the level of um, Hannibal? 
Um, <laughs> I'm sure I do in here. Um, I'm not going to get to all of them because there was a lot of movies I thought about uh, doing. One, we would have eventually gotten to uh, a Charles Burnett film or probably multiple because I think Charles Burnett is the great unsung director of American film because besides Killer of Sheep, no one knows about any of his movies except for maybe My Brother's Wedding. But I think all of his movies I've seen are worth watching and some of them like To Sleep With Anger and My Brother's Wedding um, or Nat Turner, Troublesome Property are stellar. Uh, I think anyone should go take a look at Charles Burnett. Plus, I'm just fascinated by his career. The fact that now he's making like direct to like TV Hallmark movies is yeah. interesting and sad in its own way. Absolutely. Um, we would have gotten a more Peter Greenaway. Um, as I said, I saw both Prospero's books and The Falls last year, and they're both even better than uh, uh, Cook, Thief, His Wife, and His Lover. Um, Punishment Park, I adored as well. And uh, Peter Watkins is a really fascinating filmmaker. Um I kind of wanted always to get to The Believer. That's that Henry Bean film about the uh, neo-Nazi who's actually Jewish. Uh, it's played Ryan by Gosling? Ryan. Yes, Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Um, I think that's a fascinating film. Um, the more I think about it, the more I love it. It's also an incredibly difficult film to talk about, uh, an incredibly like difficult film to watch. It's very blunt about what it's trying to do, but also very complex in its character study of a person who maybe shouldn't be getting that complex of a character study. Who knows? Um, I'm with but- you. Especially like the way that film ends, I think uh, we could have had a living discussion about it. fascinating ending. Um, let's I'm gonna, see. I will check that out. Um, Angel's Egg uh, by uh, Oshi, who also directed Ghost in the Shell um, and Pot Labor Two. It's another anime, but it's a it's a more abstract anime, and it's maybe my favorite religious movie besides Winter Light. So that's wonderful. Um, Marlon Riggs, maybe that would director. Have, maybe that would have cracked the anime code for me. Who's to well, know? We'll never know now. Um, uh, Marlon Riggs is a director who, uh, who's a documentary filmmaker, uh, who did Tongues Untied, Black is Black Ain't, Ethnic Notions, and Color Adjustment, which are all documentaries about the black experience in America, and specifically, uh, Tongues Untied is about the black gay experience in America that are both fascinating as pieces of, like, ethnography and explication of, like, what it was like to be black and gay in, like, 1980s and 1990s America, and also just incredibly stylish, well-made movies. So it's got both those things going forward. I think he's incredible. Um, Les Blank, I love a lot. Uh, we've already gotten to something by him. Um, also, I wanted to do an episode of just Takashi Ito shorts. Um, he's the guy I've watched the most movies of uh, besides Brackage in general, and I think he's a genius. Um, no one does spatial relationships like him. He's the best in the business. Um, a movie you he's brought somebody up. I want to check out. Yeah, he's he's delightful. Uh, Things by Andrew Jordan. We would have gotten to eventually because it's yes. it's a wonderful movie that everyone should watch. Trust me. Just watch Things. Don't even know what it's about. Just go in and you'll have a great time. Yes. Um, uh, The Limey by Steven Soderbergh, uh, I think is the best Steven Soderbergh movie. Showgirls by Paul Verhoeven is the best Paul Verhoeven movie. Oh, uh, we would need a guest on that one. Yes, it would have been Juan there with us, but... uh. Uh, maybe like a structuralist day where we talked about film in which there appear edge lettering, sprocket holes, dirt particles, etc., as well as the flicker by Tony Conrad. Who who knows? Um, I'm trying to flip through. I don't want to like be here all day. I'm trying to flip through to like the really big ones. Um, oh, we would have eventually gotten a brackage because I adore yeah. brackage. Uh, you've seen some brackage, but not nearly enough. So yeah, not nearly enough at all. Um, I think he's one of the most original, greatest directors of all times. It is how it is. It is. Um, the original movie I suggested to Ross in uh, instead of Neil Breen, I gave him two options. One was Neil Breen. The other is the movie where Bigfoot rips a guy's dick off, a.k.a. Night of the <laughs> Demon from 1980. That <laughs> moment in the film is one of my favorite moments in in cinema. I think it's exactly what I want out of my B-horror movies. I think in general, it's just an incredibly entertaining, stupid, ridiculous, campy, wonderful that everyone should check and out. Michelle, 
And Michelle will also find the most uh, loosest way to bring that up into conversation. Yes. You could just mention anything and say, well, it's not like when Bigfoot rips that guy's dick off in Night of the Demon. Like any list I probably start on, on Letterboxd has a comment saying, well, when you see the film where Letterboxd, uh, where uh, Bigfoot rips a guy's dick off, and um, you will that, that'll be in your list. Um, she constantly goes on and on about that. So um, I'm, I will, I'm sure I'll watch that just out of pure curiosity at this point. It's, it's the reason film was made was for Bigfoot to rip a guy's dick off. Um, yeah, I, I love Richard Stanley, as you know, and I think Dust Devil is maybe the, the best film of the '90s. Big claim, but I think Dust Devil is incredible. Um, if you ever had like five hours, um, as I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw Brief as a Beauty. Uh, it might be too acclaimed for us, actually, but I think it's truly stellar. Miami Vice is my favorite Michael Mann movie. But I think you also love Miami Vice, right? Yeah, I feel like that would just be us agreeing on a lot of things. Yeah, that's the same reason I didn't I didn't do that one. I also didn't do Bringing Out the Dead for that you discussed. It, yeah. It, we, we would have been like, yeah, it's a great movie. There's nothing else to really to say about it. Um, the end. Hype Williams, the music video director, did a movie called Belly. Which I've always wanted to see. It's visually immaculate. Some of the story stuff is blah, but the visually is delightful. Um, Watermelon Man by Melvin Van Peebles is hilarious. Uh, one of the most biting satires I've seen in a long time. Uh, and I think that Godfrey Cambridge is a delight. Um, I'm going to skip through a couple of these. I'm just going to name off a couple of movies and then not say anything about them. Because I want to get to like two in particular. Um, so The Cremaster Cycle, I would have wanted to get to. Um, Miami Connection, I adore. Uh, the Mayfair set or any Adam Curtis movie in general. Uh, Anne Flux, I think, is super underrated and is visually gorgeous. Uh, Sick, The Life and Death of Bob Flanning and Supermasochist. Uh, the The Rock by Michael Bay. Uh, that might be too... I don't know if that's too acclaimed. I know it's, like, obviously very popular, but I don't know if it's, like, considered one of the greatest films of all time, even though I think it definitely is. It's definitely considered Michael... Probably the, one of the most agreed upon Michael Bay films, yes. at least. Um, Fresh by... Uh, is uh, Sorry, Fresh is maybe my favorite, uh, like quote-unquote like ghetto movie or like urban drama as i guess i got called like boys in the hood and movies like that yeah, yeah, fresh yeah. is by far my favorite and the adventures of buckaroo bonsai across the eighth dimension i just have a big history of that as a kid it's a movie i watched a lot so but the two i wanted to talk about a little bit just for a second i know we're going long is a uh, toad and i have eight, i have eight percent on my laptop battery uh, we're so we're, we're gonna finish up real quick so toad road was a movie that i know you want to see quite a bit um yeah. i think toad road is wonderful and has only grown in my estimation the more i've thought about it and then um both flooding with love for the kid and your brother remember by zachary oberzon i think are both five-star movies as i said earlier in this podcast your brother remember is the hardest i've ever cried in a movie and i did it twice while watching it i think it's um both a brilliant piece of like cinema and like this incredible piece of uh almost familial therapy uh, where it's about these two kids who uh not kids anymore two adults who when they were kids um they recreated scenes from movies like kickboxer on their vhs camera and then it's them as adults recreating their recreations as kids uh crazy and it's kind of like a look at how their the, these two brothers lives diverged as they grew up and uh one brother became zachary oberson who is this like a uh, big name in like new york theater he made these movies that kind of stuff and his brother gator uh ended up becoming like heavily involved in drugs uh and crime and stuff like that and there's a scene i'm just gonna describe it real quick uh no spoilers because it's a documentary but there's a scene where they're trying to do one of the scenes they're trying to recreate it and um gator is having such bad like convulsions from withdrawal from heroin addiction that he can't keep doing the scene and he apologizes to his brother for that in that moment and i'm i have to stop talking about because i'm almost like gonna start crying it's, it's incredible Damn. um so yeah uh that's what could have been. That's what could have been, but never will be, or might be. Who knows? But for right now, at least, not not ever. So are we going to put the, the cement on the cannon and seal it up forever? 
Um, yeah, until we get a jackhammer and break it open again. But that's no promises, Absolutely. just so people know. That's not a promise. It's more it, like a potential. It is a possibility, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and Mat- Michelle, let's just... To go personally, this has been such a pleasure to do with you for the past... Feel, how long have we been doing this now? When's the first episode posted? Um, I would have to go back and look, but it feels like it's been like a couple of years now, right? Yeah, and it's uh, been an absolute pleasure to um, to transmit these voices from different sides of um, computers that are very far apart, intercontinental. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many miles are between us. Uh, we never really cracked the, um, you know, changing the rebranding to some kind of... Uh, People who were in different countries watch films podcasts, but that was always what it was. Or really the Canon Enthusiast to... podcast that you. Yeah, the. Uh, the... <laughs> I still wonder if someone stumbled upon our podcast looking for Canons. Um, but no, this has been an absolute pleasure, and it'll just be, if anything, not doing this podcast beyond not being able to talk about films and ramble on um, for hours at a time, just not to talk about them with you, Michelle. Will uh, I will be sorely missed. Um, but we we still stay in touch. I'm sure it's not like I said. It's not. We're not going to go kill ourselves after this. Hopefully. Um, so yes. I, I'm good. I, I I am gonna miss uh, these discussions, with Michelle. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, it, I agree. It, it's um, sad. It was wonderful having this like opportunity to talk to you every single week. Um, getting to know you better, getting to watch whatever dumb movies you had me watch, and making you watch whatever dumb movies I wanted you to watch. Uh, yeah, it's and been also really great. Asking about asking about uh, how the countries work yes. in relation to one another. I, <laughs> I've learned so much about the UK, and apparently learned things wrong because Ross doesn't know anything about his own. Absolutely. Well, both our countries seem to have gone um, heavily down the pan in the uh, the timeline yeah, of this podcast. Yeah, it's not been great. No. Uh, so maybe when things come out in the Neil Breen utopia and the other end, we might, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But I'm like I said, I'm, I'm sure this isn't the last time we're going to um, spitball about films or other things. So I look forward to whatever the next thing is that we do one day, yes. and however brief or fleeting it may be. Look ahead to like our contact info. Like You can still find me at Space Jam Fan. It's probably the easiest one on Twitter. And I mean... I'm looking. I'm actually making a movie right now. It's a structural film, of course. Um, Excellent. And, uh, so I'll finally maybe actually create something artistically. I'm still writing about movies. Roz is still writing about movies. Um, so you can still find us, and we'll still collab on stuff. I'm sure. But exactly. Ross Burks at Twitter. Ross Burks and Letterbox. Um, you remember a while ago I started making a feature film. It kind of got tied up with a load of different um, obstacles, which I'm still working on. There's also something else I'm working on this year, which I'm trying not to go into enough because i'm just going to get my head down and try and make it and hopefully put something out but i am making more stuff this year so you could you can follow me on all those platforms and you'll see stuff i'm putting out me and michelle will no doubt share words on twitter publicly that you can see as arguing <laughs> over something um and most of all thanks to any listeners out there if, you know however many of the or however few of the you are yes there, there to, weren't a ton um, of you but it was wonderful hearing from you whenever i did hear exactly and we know that we did we have some people who do listen and it was a pleasure to uh to do this for you um, and and so until next time, whenever that may be, um, and Michelle, you need to watch Twin Peaks: The Return to. I well. I'll so maybe to it. Now how long it'll be, Michelle will have watched eighteen hours of Twin Peaks. Um, <laughs> so if anyone else, if there are any listeners, whoever's left, if you want to go through all the episodes and count the amount of times I mentioned Twin Peaks, that'd be an interesting stat. Um, but until that day comes, and Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to speak to you again. However, we may speak. Um, and I hope everything's good and everything carries on personally to flourish for you um and now you don't have the ball ache of this podcast so yeah. um okay let's throw it in the in the garbage fire yes <laughs> yes throw it in the garbage fire that's our yes. podcast motto um so this has been reloading the cannon sealed up uh we, the cannon has been fully reloaded with 14 um cannon uh cannonballs which are all worth um a, a sh- i don't know how far i can push this metaphor michelle but um <laughs> michelle it's been an absolute pleasure listeners it's been an absolute pleasure um that's it on my end from the UK. It is now five to eight, five to nine in the UK on February. <laughs> what the fuck are you the doing? 8th. 
I'm putting. I've got. I feel like I've got to like mark the occasion. So it's February the eighth. Okay, it's February the eighteenth. This is the end of Reloading Canon. Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ross, for coming on this stupid journey with me. I've been Ross Burks. I've been Michelle Arf. In three, should we two, sh- should we say one. It? yeah? Cool, yeah, everybody. So three, two, oh, oh, say fuck. cool, everybody. I, oh, fuck's sake. I'll, I'll just match it up Naturally so we say it at the fun. same time in the in the audacity. No one will know. Okay, cool, everybody. Cool, everybody. She's awesome. not going to edit that. It'll re- it'll remain that way for the final. Probably. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thank Bye. you. Bye.